Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Wumpens Katane. This will be fun. Let's go. So. We were discussing, you know, the um, involvement of sex magic in, you know, secret societies and various orders and groups and covens and really what sex magic really is, you know, what it, you know, what it can represent and the dangers involved in it and, um, you know, and how to, you know, successfully or safely negotiate it to incorporate it into your life without you know, being abused or, or taken advantage of, or being put in the position where you feel like that is something um, you have to participate in because the rest of the group is doing it. And without it, you can't advance. And that's, well, that's bullshit. So um, I was just talking with um, one of Frater RC students here about that. Um, yeah. Yes. I have co-hosts on this episode. It's going to be so much fun. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Say hi if you want. Otherwise, don't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, I guess I'll just jump right into it. You know, I will say, I'll say, I'll say something I said last time. Um, for me, it was a big selling point when I was young, because uh, when I was 10, I lived in an OTO oasis um, in North Vancouver, up at the corner of Osborne and St. Mary's in this big white house. And uh, my mom's boyfriend was the head of the guy there. And there was an AA priestess there. And they owned, all owned a business together on Lower Lonsdale, a little cafe called Spirals where they did uh, magic and, and rituals at night and then served coffee and booze on the day and had bands and stuff. And so I knew a lot about the OTO at the age of 10, way too much, in fact. I mean, mainly they trafficked cocaine and then they were also an oasis. But, you know, uh, I didn't find that out till years later. Um, <laughs> when I found out the Golden Dawn had no sex magic in the order and no sex in the order and all that sort of thing, to me, that was a big selling point because I was like, Clearly, this eliminates a whole bunch of problems that could arise in being in a magical group. And, and that was a big selling point for why I joined the Golden Dawn at age 15 over the OTO or some other group that was more friendly towards uh, incorporating sex magic into their group activities. And, and that's one of the reasons I left Wicca and stuff because a, a lot of those groups also were doing a lot of that stuff. And I was like, yeah, it's just not, not what I'm looking for, especially at age 15. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, it's a very valid point. Um, sex magic is incorporated in a lot of different organizations. Um, you know, it's, it's with, they don't call it this, but like skyclad rituals in Wicca and in witchcraft, traditional witchcraft, um, different pagan groups use it. Um, I know a lot of organizations would believe that the, you know, the, the achievement of the orgasm or the chemical marriage or the Eleusinian mysteries, or, I mean, pick one, there's lots of different um, aspects of what is considered sex magic in different magical societies. Um, uh, 
like Alistair Crowley wrote a book called Enochian Sex Magic, um, using orgasm to help him get into the Enochian state. I mean, when he was doing his call the 30 theories of Victor Newberg, there's quite well documented him using sex and uh, an orgasm to help project his mind into the etherical state so he could then scry the vision. Um, there's different ideas surrounding sex magic. One along the lines that you put the bed in the east and then couple with your partner. And then during the state of orgasm, you then scry or evoke or do your magic um, using sex as your bridge, so to speak. Um, you know, the, even in yoga, the, in tantric yoga and in kundalini magic with yoga, um, they talk about how um, like Brahman being heaven and orgasm is like licking an iceberg um, that gives the, the untrained mind an opportunity to experience what it's like to sit in Sarasamadhi, like to sit in, you know, continuous consciousness or enlightenment. Um, that state of orgasm is the highest possible achievable experience for the, the finite being, for the, the unenlightened or unilluminated uh, um, student. Uh, whereas the master yogi who could induce samadhi or sarasamadhi and the continuation of that state of mind would then have that euphoric sense of bliss from like that you'd experience as if you were having an orgasm. Um, so a lot of people have thought that an orgasm and that that state of that state of mind, state of consciousness, um, is a um, um, like a like I said, a, like a bridge that allows you to carry a certain amount of power, a release of power from yourself to then be focused and channeled into a sigil or a seal or a ritual or a you know a, an intended result. Because the intent has always been, and of course, intent is everything with magic. Um, the intent is to um, use that charge to, um, you know, get the best result from the work you're doing. And that could be done with a, a partner. That could be done through autoeroticism using masturbation or, um, you know, visual, visual in, induction. Like there's many different ways to go about it um, using, say, sex magic. But the, the caveat to all of it is that sex magic has to be done with informed consent. And I say informed consent, not just consent, because informed consent means that the participant, if there is a participant, is completely aware of what's happening. Why is this necessary? What is the goal? Why am I having to be involved? Why not you just work one out and get your magic that way? Like, why do I have to be present here? And like I said, the caveat is that, unfortunately, lots of people in positions of power have used sex magic throughout the centuries or the millennia for that matter, to take advantage of those who are vulnerable. Those who, people in the position of power have control or they influence people who are, you know, desirable of achieving a rank, getting their next, you know, initiation. They want to be a part of the group. They feel like that's what everyone else is doing. So I have to do it too. And unfortunately this brings a non-conformed, non-informed consent. And so they participate and really what they're doing is they're either being raped, sexually abused, um, brought into something that they're not ready for. All sorts of terrible um, advantages can be taken over vulnerable students. So it's, there's no point ever in a magical society, a group, a coven, uh, a relationship with a teacher where anyone should feel pressured to participate in anything that they feel uncomfortable with. 
that especially revolves around sexuality. If you're standing in front of your teacher and he whips out his dick or she forces you to have sex with her, there's no forcing. You can always say no because there's no point in magic where sex magic is required for advancement ever. There is no point in any of the lore that suggests that. There is discussions about how sex magic and the chemical marriage within the Eleusinian mysteries and the demonstrations of that was important maybe 2000 years ago, but we're not living 2000 years ago. And so even in the performance of doing those rites, um, it's not something that should be required of you as a student. And I just really wanted to really get that out there that you know, sex magic can be very useful. It can be a very interesting tool. It can be a lot of fun, can be zesty as an enterprise within the magical world, but that doesn't mean that it's something you have to be a part of or that you ever have to feel pressured to do so. And if your teacher ever states that that's something you just have to do, you tell that teacher to go fuck themselves and you never talk to them again. Go find another teacher because you should never feel pressured to be a part of something you're uncomfortable with, especially when it comes to magic. Magic is supposed to bring light and compassion and forgiveness and humility and uplift your mind so you can help others. And if you're being pressured to do something that you're not comfortable with, because that's the way it's done in this order, well, you don't need to be there any longer. There's no shame in saying, you know, I'm not comfortable with this. And the fact that you're pushing, putting pressure on me to be a part of this, I don't think this is for me. And then you walk out and you look someplace else, pick up a different book, be a part of a different group because there's lots of them. What do you guys think about that? Oh, that's I my little really, yeah, no, I super agree because, uh, I have firsthand experience with exactly that. And what it is, is I would go as far as to say, I would suggest to people, if they have an interest in joining an organization or being led by a specific teacher, from the get-go, I would even suggest to lay down those ground rules and bring up that conversation, even yeah. how awkward and, and uncomfortable it could be, but for the sake of letting them know that, hey, I just want to make sure, like, I'm not expected to pay back in any sort of, in a sex way. Um, yeah. Yeah, because like I said, that happened to me where my very first uh, experience with going to a festival full of people of all range of esotericism and uh, psychics and readers and such, I was told by a astrologer based off my chart that it was destiny that I was supposed to be taught by this guy who I've known I've now and I still say to this day is one of the best astrologers I've ever met um, ever. And, you know, so right from the get-go, the teaching started and I was already learning all the basics about astrology. It wasn't until the very end of the night, that's when the price got brought up and was, hey, so, you know, I just pretty much taught you around $300 worth of knowledge. Um, and so if you want me to incorporate my successful energy, then here's what we need to do. And it was related to a sexual um, favor, sexual payments. And, you know, I didn't want to do it. And luckily, I'm that kind of strong willed kind of stubborn person. I was like, No, I'm not gonna do that. Are you crazy? Um, come and find out years later, that this was a habit of this individual, um, who has had a multitude of apprentices who have all been told that it's their destiny to be taught by this person based on the stars alignment and such. Uh, yeah. Now, flash, uh, flash forward about, I'd say like six or so years 
this was just recently this was just last year actually um i was told this individual had changed a lot not that it's not the way they used to be back then we should reconnect this person's really cool now they've grown up as a person like okay cool so i reconnected <laughs> and i regretted it immediately this person did not change at all um as a matter of fact he had said that the reason why my life has been in such a struggle when it comes to relationships and career and all that is because I never let him do any of those sexual magics with me. And everyone else that he that they let him do that, they're now successful, but not me because I said no. Um, yeah, completely. Bullshit. So that's why I would suggest to people, you know what, like it's it's unfortunate. That was my very first experience from a teacher, so to speak. And um, I suggest to all the listeners that if, if you, I'm not trying to scare anyone away from being an apprenticeship or a teacher or organizations, but bring up that dialogue. I would really suggest that. I really want to thank you for um, sharing that with us. And, um, you know, it's, it takes a lot of courage to, you know, be honest, especially publicly about things that you've been through that, um, you know, that, that harmed or, or brought pain to you or, a lack of trust, especially in an organization or sorry, a community such as this one, where I got to give you huge props that even after being through such an experience, you're still here, still searching, still looking for information, still studying. You know, that takes a lot of strength and uh, you should be proud of yourself. That's pretty cool. And I, I, you know, I'm really sorry that you had to go through such an experience because it does happen way more frequently than most people give credit to. There's a lot of stigma about calling out people who are in positions of power for their their bad behavior and especially in in communities like the magical ones where you know people don't like to name names you know we all use magical names quote unquote and um you know people don't like to be they don't want their reputations being risked or their their you know their bullshit being called on and uh not everyone behaves in a in a manner which is sexually inappropriate but it does happen and um like you were saying a few seconds ago, like really what it comes down to is the establishment of personal boundaries. Um, and if you are going to enter into a, a, a relationship, you know, quote unquote, a relationship with the teacher, um, that, that you lay down those personal ground rules. Like, look, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for you to teach me magic and I'm really excited to learn with you, but you should be aware that it doesn't matter what we're doing. This is not going to be anything other than just a relationship where we study magic because I'm not, involved in anything else and um if anything of a sexual nature or inappropriate thing comes up i'm gone and uh and you'll be reported because that's no one else should have to suffer that kind of behavior right yeah completely yeah no yeah. uh you have anything you want to throw in there fred or rc oh i uh for those listening that was brother david soul who's also been on this podcast talking about ghost hunting and and is a wonderful member of our our hermetic mystery school here I'm, I'm i'm glad it's really cool to be doing this actually i'm i'm enjoying this experimentation of uh of what we're doing right now and, and enjoying it so yeah like i have i as you know from uh from other conversations we might or might not have had uh brother um i don't actually have a lot of experience in this area so i don't have a lot to say about sex magic um it was pretty obvious to me as a teen while i was doing my learning learning basic ritual work how to integrate that into like you know your 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 nightly shit as a teenage boy like that was pretty obvious to me plus you know i grew up in a household where my parents were maharishi mahesh yogi followers so there was 
you know, transfer books everywhere. So me and my sister, by the, when we were 11, 12, we had all these books that we were never interested in. And then we're like, oh, let's actually read those books. So we read all these Tantra and sex books that my parents had. And that's how we learned, uh, you know, in Germany, in Vienna, as it's high school, I saw these kids reading nudie mags. And I was like, why are all these 12 year olds on the bus reading porn? And, and, and I said, isn't that like wrong? And the German girl, the Austrian girl next to me uh, said, you know, of course not. How else would they learn? This is how they learn. We gave them to them. It's like, really? Wow, that's different. They also yeah. just have them on street uncovered for sale, like porn everywhere in, in Europe. They, oh. Their shampoo commercials on TV show full, full boobs and yeah. shampoo commercials. I was sitting there with the family. The camera keeps going down. You know, in, in North America, where it pans away to show the suds going down the back of the neck, there it shows the suds going down the front, the front of the chest. And I was like, what the shit? And I looked around at everyone and like they were totally not even paying attention. I'm like, those are tits. And they're like, yeah, have you not had a shower? You know, you have, you know, I was like, oh, this is such a, this is, you know, just such a different world. <laughs> and I was like, then I was like, oh, right, Puritanism. That's what happened in North America. We were founded by the lame, lame bums who got thrown out of the party in Europe. Yeah. Like, like we've been saying this last, you know, half an hour, um, you know, sexuality and its importance with, you know, personal development and choice and, or within the magical world, bringing it back to magic here. I mean, really it's a beautiful, it can be a very beautiful thing. It's something you can enjoy and celebrate within your magical traditions if that's the kind of tradition you celebrate. You mentioned earlier how Fred R.C. that, um, you know, things that appeal to you about the Golden Dawn was that um, there is no sex magic at the Golden Dawn. And really there isn't. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing that I can think about in the first or second order where that really comes up. It's, you know, maybe hypothetically or, or indirectly might be discussed uh, when discussing, you know, earlier members of the Golden Dawn, like Aleister Crowley and some of the things that he developed, but, you know, the sex magic within the, 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 you know, the community of magic goes back thousands of years. It's not just with Crowley. And I've heard many times from different people that Crowley created sex magic. And that's such a load of crap, you know, like <laughs> sex magic has been used by different cultures and different magical practices for thousands of years. It's just today, you know, especially in the kind of world we're in where people really you know, have access to all sorts of things, it's very important just to continue to bring up that it's always going to be choice. And there's no shame in saying no. And um, in fact, if you can say no and have the courage to say no and back away, well, good for you. If anything, you're more obviously developed than the person who's trying to pressure you. That person should be locked away or at least call them their crap so they can't hurt other people. Um, this um, is something you and I were talking about the other night, Fred RC, about okay. how um, not sex magic directly, but just the philosophy of magic. You know, like what is the like the philosophy of magic is mentioned a little bit in the Tree of Life by Isra Magarde. It's mentioned in a lot of other books. The three books of cult philosophy, of course, is pure cult philosophy. Um, but you know, in today's today's communities, today's magical groups, you know, what is the philosophy of magic? Like, what is the drive? The 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 background behind our choices to study magic and what is the goal and what is the, what is our achievement we're trying to gain to and um, what rules or boundaries should govern those things and how should they be monitored or observed by other groups. Um, when I'm talking about the vulnerabilities of sex magic and being able to say no and such things, well, that's, that's part of it. It's part of the philosophy of magic, the, the, the background information that we should all be aware of. Um, what do you think about that?
it's uh it's it's worth noting that in the golden dawn the writings of thomas lake harris became popular and were being very heavily pushed by people like barrage uh who was uh i believe imperator at the at, at one point when he was really following the teachings of thomas lake harris who was out of santa rosa california who was writing all these sex magic sort of manuals and and promoting those teachings i believe it was along with his mentor friend uh randall you know best pascal beverly randall but i could be wrong on that um and what was interesting to me to read about in the history and nick farrell really goes into this quite a bit in his uh king over the water um what's interesting is that when members prudish members of the golden dawn originally uh brought up to people like mathers and moina that they had problems with barrage following these teachings and dropping little thomas lee care pamphlets off at the isis urania temple in london and sort of being like oh hey this is out there and you know he was obviously practicing that stuff which involved things like uh, i believe no masturbation and uh, some other strange teachings that went went along with that um and uh or maybe it was something weird like no orgasms for men and just for women i don't know there's a there's a, it's it gets a little crazy sometimes in my, my opinion but what's, what was really interesting is that mathers and moina didn't censure those who were doing that in their private lives if the, and, and moina had major hang-ups she thought sex all sex was disgusting i think mathers was honestly gay and she was his beard that's my opinion personal opinion and and uh well you know he, he did ride around paris in a kilt like gay well i own for the, for the I record know. for the record <laughs> i own i own six kilts and i wear them all the time that doesn't make me gay uh, and there's nothing wrong with and there's nothing wrong with being gay whether matthew's no. gay or not right um in yeah. fact if anything it's like well good for him <laughs> That's awesome, you know. Yeah, totally. But what was interesting was they might have been prudish and not having a sexual any sex in their lives. Allegedly, they had zero sex in their lives entirely. That's the official story. Um, at you know, period. That's the yeah. official story. I don't believe it at all. But I could see maybe Moina staying celibate if she really truly was offended and disgusted by even the concept of sex. And uh, and that's what Farrell sort of presents it as and I think that's probably it might be true I think that's probably true but what's interesting to me is that they didn't chastise condemn or expel their members who were practicing that and they were like that's their own personal lives that has nothing to do with us and we're not going to and you know to be so so to to have so much issues around sexuality like Moina did and still not expel someone because they were doing their personal life really spoke highly I think uh, of character and 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 of the character of the order that it was like look we don't do that here but we're not going to like throw you out because you do that privately. So I thought that's, that's an interesting thing for people to know. It's not like the golden dawn was anti. No. Like, and sex. you know, like it's, um, it's interesting because, um, you know, in the second order of the golden dawn, the RAC, um, or whatever name they want to call their second order, depending on which group you're working with. Um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on the adepts to, um, develop their own like version or style of magic or to do research into the areas that they're interested in. And yes, there's specific requirements for five equals six to get to six equals five. And as you raise the subgrades of the second order through five equals six, you have to still study the same stuff everyone else has studied. You have to work through, you know, Z2 documents and the Enochian system and, 
you know, work through the things you have to work through. But at the same time, there's a lot of encouragement as a student to, you know, work on things you also are fascinated by and apply the things you've learned in the outer order upon the second order material. Um, like if you want to write your own LBRP, go right ahead. In fact, you should, and you should use your own interests in magic to do so. But a lot of times when you get to that point, you're, as a student, so indoctrinated into, you know, Egyptian mythology or whatever it is that um, your temple is promoting, it's hard to feel like you can branch out. Sex magic, I've, I've had people bring up with me when talking to other students over the years as like, well, is that is that something that I can include? And I'm like, well, as long as it's all done within safe boundaries, then why not? Um, you know, if you want to bring Diana and Cronunos and Pan and Eros and Eris and, you know, all the Greek and Roman uh, deities that involve, you know, eroticism and sexuality into your workings of magic, well, great, do it and, uh, and, and see if it works. It's something that would be fun to, to, to work with. Um, you know, there's a lot of promotion in the beauty of, you know, the divine sensuality, the hedonism within the self and the joy found therein. Um, you know, uh, it, does that make it now a part of Golden Dawn? No, not at all. I mean, the Golden Dawn system is an established system and it's developed the way it is. Um, you know, but other organizations, other systems of magic do have the incorporation of sensuality, sexuality or otherwise as part of their ceremonies. And and that's fine. Um, I actually have a question about that. Like, I don't know much about that. Uh, do, is that is that the case in the AA and OTO? I, you know what, I'm I'm no longer a member of the OTO, and I'm no longer a member of the AA. I uh, I'm no longer the member of the Golden Dawn. I, I just mean in their in their written curriculum that's published. No. Um, again, there's I mean there's the required readings as a member of the AA. You have to go through a lot of all the, well, all the texts. Um, and God knows Crowley wrote a lot of texts that were sexual in nature. I mean, Liber Ash is a great one. Um, but, you know, I mean, what, how did he put it? He's like, let mine basilisk eye pierce the sigil of the demon. <laughs> I mean, pretty obvious what he's talking about there. But, you know, that's the great thing about Crowley. He liked using his metaphors. Um, I, or, um, you know, um, come with Artemis and silken shod and wash thy white thigh, beautiful God. If, when they hit him to pan. Um, Crowley had lots of great little, well, that actually wasn't Crowley, but um, lots of really interesting um, innuendos and, and metaphors within a lot of his poetry um, towards sexuality and his, the importance of it. And, and, and in the AA, there's no, nothing really in the curriculum that I remember that has a direction about you must be participating within sex magic to advance. Um, it's just not there. Um, in the OTO, I can't speak to the OTO because, of course, I'm not a member and not anymore. Um, I didn't really get very far in the OTO, and I don't really know what happens in some of the higher grades. I, I lost interest at that point, um, um, but it was fun when I was younger. In all fairness, the Ecclesiastical Gnostic Church, with the EGC, which is a branch of the OTO, during their Gnostic Mass, the priestess takes her clothes off in public, and we look at her, and she's the divine goddess, and, you know, praise be to the... Uh, to the mother and no part of me that's not of the gods. I mean, that obvious blatant sexuality within, if you want to think about it as blatant sexuality, really it's just a nude woman sitting on an altar representing Nubi, the, the goddess. And great. I mean, if you want to think about it in sexual terms, that's your call, but it's really not appropriate, especially within a church. Um, but that being said, like 
OTO and AA aside, there are organizations that I have participated in where sexuality is a huge part of it. Um, I was a member of a secret society in Vancouver that it was entirely made up of pagans. And on Beltane, it was very, very encouraged that that's the fertility festival. That's where everyone gets together and fucks. And they have a great time. And there's lots of nudity around the fire and everyone, male and female and, and all the feminists and the everyone's welcome. There's It's a hugely accepting organization where there's, you know, the LGBTQ society is all very present and everyone's very welcome and there's lots of love and and the, the celebration of sexuality was a big part of that organization, but not from a weird, creepy place. If you acted weird or creepy, they'd kick you out and they'd call the police. They had no tolerance for that. It was about being free to self-express as a, as a path to heaven, like the hedonistic path of joy between the, the, um, the, re the relationship between yourself and your own sexuality and the knowledge that you're in a space that's safe that you could express yourself safely and not be judged or harmed or taken advantage of or pressured to be in any other way than yourself. And it was one of the first times I'd ever seen in a group of 150 people or more that level of safety where everybody is exploring that. I mean, it wasn't a big orgy, don't get me wrong. Like not everyone was sitting around fucking. Um, but the, the ideas being presented were that if you want to be nude in public, go for it. You're, you're welcome to. You want to find a chosen partner in the crowd and you're both consenting, well, go off the tents and have a great time. There is a, they even had a temple set up called the Temple of Aphrodite, where there was clean sheets and a basket and you went in, strung a rope across it, closed the drapes, did the dirty deed, and then you came out, put your dirty sheets in a laundry basket and changed the sheets, and out you go. Next person, you had one hour. That's super cool. It was all set up in a temple. There was an altar to Aphrodite and Eros in there and Pan. And it was a celebration act. You're going into a temple to specifically have the chemical marriage. And I mean, it was all very safe. It was all run by the priestesses of Eros. And uh, it was an, and for me, it was very interesting because of course I was there as a high magician. I was not there as a, as a pagan. I was there more as a, a guest and I got to see an uh, 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 aspect of, the, you know, the involvement of con uh, consensual and safe sexuality present within a magical group um, that I'd never seen before when talking to, you know, magicians of the occult world. If anything, when talking to Wiccans and, you know, uh, occultists, normally when sexuality is brought up in the conversation, it was something terrible, um, some sort of advantage that was being taken or some sort of you know, ego power where the person in charge is using pressure to get laid and people are going along with it because they didn't know what else to do. They didn't want to lose their position. And it's like, it's awful. Whereas, and I'm not saying that all the pagans are safe, don't get me wrong. I mean, God knows there's horror stories from all sorts of sides of magic. But um, in that particular organization that I was being observing, it was, it was amazing to see, it was really beautiful. But after I left that group and I moved along, um, I did hear, all sorts of very interesting stories about people who had been taken advantage of or abused or otherwise and um, who left and lots of blame, blame, blame. And uh, I heard all sorts of conflicting stories from ex-participants. And um, I think that, again, what it comes down to is like what I was saying earlier that, you know, when you're involving yourself, the group, and you're putting yourself in a position where you're vulnerable, 
whether that's just because you're naked or you're with people who you don't know very well or otherwise, you establish safe boundaries. Um, you have the courage to say no. If you don't feel like you have the courage to say no, you should not be there. And um, it, it just comes to the same safe practices that should be in any kind of magical organization um, because it, it's just so frequent, you know, people being taken advantage of um, in different organizations. So, you know, you can see both sides of the coin in that one in regards to, you know, really cool stuff happening, you know, maybe it's not appropriate. I personally don't think sexual magic should be part of Golden Dawn work or AA work for that matter. I don't see any purpose to it. I mean, as an adept, sure, yeah, give it a try. Yeah, if you want to do some autoeroticism and look at a picture of Crowley and see if you can talk to the, uh, you know, to Ayavaz, well, good for you. You know, I hope I hope that works out for you. Um, <laughs> I don't personally see how doing autoeroticism to um, talk to your HGA is going to work out for you. But I mean, hey, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, it's, those aren't the methods that I use, but that doesn't mean everyone else has to do the same thing. Yeah, is there is there uh is there any other magicians you could think of that might have a better picture? In what way? Instead of Crowley's. Yeah, because oh. I don't think I don't think like you know. Um... Well, maybe I mean I think I don't think the photograph had been inve uh, invented yet, but maybe Madame Blavatsky looked pretty good before. I mean, in all fairness, <laughs> like I said, I'm not gay, so I mean I'm looking at the ladies and. You know, the only photos I have of my dad Vlasky is when she's like 80 years old. So maybe when she was in her 30s, that was a little bit more fun to look I at. I actually think she was in the 30s at that time. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. She's still alive. I, 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 I forgot. She's still alive, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't She's know. hanging out with the reptilian queens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they caught the spaceship. They're all in the fifth dimension with the Sasquatch migration route. I forgot, you know, I believe. Um <laughs> Yeah. Um, any other questions before we move on from sex magic? If uh, you can either speak your questions out loud or type them in the chat if you don't want your voice on the podcast recording. Anyway, okay, let's move on. Yeah. Well, since this is your first time on the podcast and people don't know much about you, uh, um, can you tell us, can you tell us something about your journey into magic? Mine? Okay, well, I'm, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. Because, um, oh, yeah, because let me, let, I, 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 yeah, because you are the author of one of the, the commentaries on the flying rules in the book, Commentaries on the Golden Dawn Flying Rules by the Golden Dawn Community, which was a book put out to fundraise money to help fight the legal battles against Jorge Hevia, who was an old student of mine in the 90s, and his, uh, his, his master, David Griffin, and their whole order. You didn't actually, it's funny to me that you didn't know that's what the publication was for, but uh, but you did end up contributing a paper about that and people should buy that book because the commentaries on the Golden Dawn Flying World book that we're talking about here is in my opinion, way more useful than reading Regardi's seventh edition Golden Dawn or sixth, any edition of the Regardi book. You get probably far better understanding of what the Golden Dawn system of magic is by reading the commentaries on the Flying Rolls than by trying to read through the initiations and figure out what that's about. Yeah, I, well, the, my contribution to the commentaries and the flying rolls back then under the pen name Frater AR, um, although even, although in the chapter, which where my essay is, it says, 
you know, my full title, very honored Fredder Amon Ra. Um, but that was a very long time ago, first of all. Um, when that came out, I was asked um, to contribute a piece to it. And at the time, I was writing essays about scrying and spirit vision and astral projection and such things like that. And um, I really didn't have much prepared. I, I, I kind of got told like, oh, you need to have it done in three days. And I'm like, ah. So I actually grabbed my portal essay and I just submitted my portal essay at the time because I hadn't even got to depth at that point. I'd, I'd been a portal in Hierophant and uh, for, the, for the Golden Dawn at the time. You were a and, Hierophant uh, in portal? Yeah. But I mean, this is this was many, many, many years ago, and we didn't really have a lot of members. So I kind of just we just kind of put the hats on and did what we had to do. Um, and I mean, I, I was already adept of another organization, and I was one of the founders of the organization that I was a part of at the time. So um, and I had voluntarily gone through the grades for just the sake of having one of the students present because we didn't really have many at the time. Mm. Um, so I, I'm like, I was hierophant for. Uh, and I was like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll throw down my portal essay as my commentary. And I, it's funny that today, I, I consider it a great privilege to have been a contributing author to that really great book, because um, there's so many amazing authors who contributed to it. Um, and their work is fantastic. It just, for me, it's a little ironic, because I read it now, and I go, ooh, Drew, why? <laughs> it could have written it so much better. I have so many things I could have added that I just I look back and I go, wow, God, I, you know, I mean, the things you had, you had three whole days from assignment to completion. I know. I don't Isn't know why you're fucking lazy, Drew. I'm just totally lazy. You know, <laughs> like, wow. Anyways, uh, thank you for calling me on that. You know, humility is a big part of magic, but, um, <laughs> uh, but you, you did ask a little bit about my background. So I, um, you're amazing. I started, you're a, an adept of the AA and the GD. It's a, it's a unique combination. I think I think we should take advantage of of the 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 confluence of all those different traditions in a single person who's had a, a minute to think about it all and come to some conclusions. Well, that's I appreciate you saying that. Um, yeah, I I've studied a number of different systems over the years, AA and Golden Dawn included. Um, I personally think that even the individual grimoires like. Verum or the Clavicula Solomonis or, you know, I mean, there's so many, uh, they're all individual systems of magic. They're not, they are just as important to me as a, as a actual system that you study to do the work as studying the Golden Dawn system. The only difference is the Golden Dawn and the OTO and money off the OTO, but the Golden Dawn and uh, the AA and, you know, organizations like that, um, you know, are initiate based secret societies of men and women who advanced in their studies of magic by especially like in the golden dawn you have the outer order which is really just theory and regurgitation and the second order where you're doing practical magic and still more theory and regurgitation until you advance to the upper grades and you're, then you're teaching the lower grades and on and on it goes um, and that's all very important and if you're lucky you're part of a really good strong um organization that's doing golden dawn work where you get to experience the creme de creme with great officers and you know anyways i could talk about the, just the golden dawn for hours and we don't need to get into that god knows golden dawn's talked about enough everywhere else um not really well, that's why i started this podcast man because <laughs> there's no golden dawn podcast the most common compliment i get is finally someone's doing an actual podcast from a golden dawn perspective now obviously i'm not just gd and i certainly like I don't limit my entire life of practice and magic 
to be constrained within a seven year period. That would be insane. But, uh, but I do fundamentally, you know, a lot of people fall back to certain default points of view. And definitely my default point of view, my spirituality is intensely wound up in the golden on system. I still follow the curriculum, even though I'm not in an order anymore. Um, all of that sort of stuff. So, so this is this is maybe the, the. I don't think there's any other Golden Dawn podcasts actually out there. Well, I, I I only said that because it seems like whenever I go to a Banyan Books or a new bookstore, I look at the occult shelf and it's 50 books written by 50 people that I know, all about Golden Dawn something. Oh, Banyan has like zero books on the Golden Dawn now. Oh, I haven't I haven't been there in years, but I, you, you know what I'm trying to say, right? Like it's like it's I always look at the shelves of the books, the occult, and it's always like golden on this or inner order golden on that or teachings golden on this or high golden dawn. it's like come on pick something new guys or come up with some new information really flush it out and maybe i should i mean put my money where my mouth is right but that's not what i'm currently studying i and we can get to that in a second because i will talk about what i'm currently working with um but you did ask me the question a little bit about my background and i guess it's, it's quite simple I, I started studying magic when i was about 14. I was, I was very privileged to meet a very respectable and um, um, learned friend who helped me study magic. And he guided me, um, you know, through my early years and helped me find, like, navigate through all the crappy, you know, fluffy magic books towards like the, the primary source materials. And eventually he helped me join the OTO. And, um, and through him, I met other friends who, um, helped me get into the AA and then I joined Freemasonry and um, again through my friends and really my, my, my one friend though I first met I mean he was really pivotal to my study of magic he really you know he was my teacher but he was also my friend and and together we then went on and um, we've been practicing golden dawn magic for years even though we weren't really members of any particular order um, you know, we had our Regardi books, we had all of our source material, and then we decided, hey, you know what, why don't we just start our own Golden Dawn Temple? Let's just do that. And we did. And, uh, you know, he did far more work than I did in that regard, um, because I was still studying and he was 15 years old than I am. But, um, you know, together we flushed out a, a system and he wrote most of the ceremonies himself. And I helped him come up with a lot of little details along the sides. And we discussed how things worked. And, we started doing GD work full time and for years. And it's still the, the organization, the temple I'm talking about is still active and my friend is still involved and, and they're still successful as far as I understand. And then, you know. It was formed in 99, right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I that was originally when it was formed. I wasn't a part of that original formation because they formed it in 99 and then it fell apart or the, the members stopped doing it. And then uh, my friend and I started working on it a couple of years later. And I think in 2000 and six or 2005 we kind of revamped it and got it going again and it's still active to this day that was a couple um, years after uh, i closed down temple tahuti and the hogd in canada yeah too bad we so, just met each other back then it would have been awesome to have you in cr oh yeah be incredible great. temple like we, we were doing initiations and everything like honestly I, I i'd be stunned if anyone's done it as good um i'm oh, sure yeah. some people have but it, honestly if you saw it I, I think it was something special. I look back today on my time with the, with the Golden Dawn as I was a very privileged person to be a part of such a good group of magicians. Um, you know, our, our floor work was clean and 
well rehearsed. All of our officers had all their lines memorized off by heart. There was no reading from books. Um, you know, we really ran it like a Masonic temple. We had a very good, clean officer crew and a good, clean temple crew. And, you know, we, we put so many hours into making it look great and we did really good work. It was really the creme de la creme. And I, I've told members of that organization over the years that who have left that, you know, looking back and being a part of a number of different organizations of the years myself, um, that we were really privileged to be able to see ritual magic in that way for all that time. And, um, but, you know, like just, we're all people. And um, I made a lot of personal mistakes when I was younger. I've, I was very egotistical and I, you know, I look back now and I kind of go, oh God, like what an asshole. <laughs> I was caught up in my own sense of self. I mean, I hadn't done any real advanced work at that point. And, but as I had continued to study the adept work and I eventually moved past the Golden Dawn, I, I left the organization and started doing my own thing. And I continued training in the system and in other systems for that matter, because my studies of magic never really stopped. Um, I eventually swore the oath to the abyss and I moved forward with my life and I'd already gone through the HGA operation and a few other things and um, and that's really no one's business I don't need to get into it but um, needless to say I've, I've had a very interesting last probably 10 years since I've left the GD um, and you know and I've been a part of a number of different organizations as well and um, pagan and occult and, you know, and fuck, druids. I was worked with the druid orders for a little while when I was younger. Um, you mentioned Unreiftain, right? Unreiftain. That's a, that, and that one really fascinated me as a teenager. I, I, I sort of, I wrote them letters and tried to join, but they're like, yeah, sorry, there's no one around. Well, I was, when I was involved with them, I was like 17. That was a long, yeah. long time. I, I wrote them letters in 93, 94, 95. And uh, they just were like that. It's just me. So much. Everything back then was like you'd send a letter, and they'd be like, "Sorry, kid. There's nothing going on where you're at. Can't help you." Like that. Well, I tried to join Dion Fortune's group. Eventually, to, went to the point of flying, you know, to England at, when I was, you know, when I was 17, 16, and walked to to Steely Road to go find them. And it was just an old guy in the garden. And I was like, "Is this the Dion Fortune's Society of Inner Light?" And he's like, "Oh." And he goes up to the door, he's like with his trowel in his hand, goes to the door, knocks, an old woman comes out, she looks up, he talks to her, points at me on the street. I'm like, I'm looking for magic, baby. And uh, <laughs> then they, she, the old lady goes in the house, comes out with some little pamphlets that look like they were printed in the 50s, gave them to me and they're like, they shoved me off, like waved their hand, go, 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 go. And I, and I looked at the stuff on the train back to London, um, well, central London and to go to Atlantis Books. I know I was I was very crestfallen, shall we say? Look, there was just a nothing happening, like nothing happening. Yeah. You know. Well, I uh, when I was really involved with the Golden Dawn and and post Golden Dawn, um, like formally involved with the Order, um, I got really involved in studying Solomonic magic. I uh, uh, for a number of years, that's all I did was work the different systems. Um, I essentially, if it was Solomonic in nature, I'd give it a shot and. Um, a lot of that was the trial period for me, like learning about my place in the study of magic. And um, the last about six years or so, I've been solely working on divine thurgy and the creation of new, new magical tools. Um, and it's kind of all I do now. I'm a, I'm a professional woodcarver these days. It's, it's what I do is how I make my money. And I, um, and I work as a counselor. And um, when I'm not working as a counselor, I'm carving. 
And I, using wood carving, I make all sorts of neat stuff that's all tied into Hermeticism and the occult. And um, most recently, I, I had a very interesting visit from my HGA and I, I got instructions on how to make my adept wand for myself. And that's what I've been working on ever since is the, is working with that and learning to use it and how to use it. And, um, you know, it's, that's been a lot of fun for me as a, as a student of magic. Um, and uh, I made my own version of the Rod of Aaron recently, and I've made a Staff of Moses recently. And um, I've got a couple of really close friends who are also students of magic who are, you know, adepts in their own right in, in other organizations. And, um, you know, we've collaborated a lot on, um, you know, drawing from the source material as to using the proper, you know, development of these tools to be used ritualistically in, you know, our own magic that we're working on. So today, I, I you know, I, I still do an Okian occasionally, and I, um, I currently have two students that I'm teaching, uh, and I'm, it's fun for them, and it's fun for me, and it took a long time for me to get to a point where I was ready to maybe take a student on, um, and I, like I was saying, like when I was younger, and I was still involved in Golden Dawn, I was, I had a lot of my own personal ego problems, which really comes from the fact that I'm a quadruple Leo, and uh, I, you know, <laughs> you know, Leo is as Leo does, as they say, um, and uh, I look back now and kind of go, sorry? You're a triple Leo, I'm a triple Aquarius. We're like yeah. three times each other's shadows. I know, I know, it's great. Three times. I'm, a, I'm a double cancer. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'll grab my black mirror in a second. I'll hold it up for you there, huh? Yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I know when I was younger, I was, I was very, um, I guess I was still struggling with, you know, my own identity and my own place. And um, I had my own problems and, outside of my study of magic, but unfortunately, you know, you, I couldn't leave my ego at the door in certain, case, in certain cases. And uh, I look back now and go, okay, well, those are lessons I need to learn. Um, I have apologized to the people who were involved for when I was, you know, a little off my rocker, but I, uh, um, you know, all you can do ultimately is take responsibility for yourself and try to be a better person. Um, you know, it always takes two to tango. There's always two sides to everything. There's always, you know, it's very rare where someone's, you know, as they said from Guardians of the Galaxy, he's like, you know, I'm an asshole, but I'm not 100% a dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's true, right? Like, there's always going to be more to it than just you being a dick. Um, you know, and I, a lot of the things that happened when I was younger in the Golden Dawn is because I was dealing with assholes. We had a lot of assholes present, members and adepts alike, and that's fine. You know, people are, people can be assholes. And um, and people all have their little roles to play and not everyone likes to sit there and look at their shadow selves and go, oh, gee, you know, I could have been better. I could have been a little bit more compassionate. I could have been a little bit more empathetic. I could have, you know, been a little more understanding and not so caught up in my own ego trip. Um, and that's fine. And, you know, I, I'm no better. And, uh, but I have tried to acknowledge that I've tried to apologize and I've tried to learn from it. And I, I think I have, I've moved on. My life is actually quite right now, probably the best it's ever been. And I'm happily married and I've got great kids and I study magic full time. It's what I do and I love my life. And um, I think that's really what it comes down to us saying earlier about the philosophy of magic. I mean, what is the goal? And now a word from our sponsors. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, 
We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Like what as an adept are you trying to do? Like what are, you, what are you trying to gain from it? And for me, personal insight and personal illumination is a big part of it. Who am I? And what is magic to me now? For me, magic has ultimately become just a tool in a toolbox. If it's easier for me to use a power drill, I'm going to. But um, if I have to impose my will or I, I can't find something out in the yellow pages or in a book or on Google, I'm going to you know, call up um, Al Tega, the Venusian um, angel, senior angel on the earth tablet and ask them questions about my love life and, uh, you know, why my wife doesn't want me to buy her a diamond ring. <laughs> she doesn't like diamond rings, just, just, that's an inside <laughs> joke. Um, but that's a great place for me to go and look, you know, I will go ask a, an earth-based Venusian senior angel for an answer if I can't get it anywhere else. I will exhaust the possibilities of the real before going into the incorporeal. Um, and that's just how I look at magic now. Magic is a tool that I use. And I, I love that I've spent so many years studying Hebrew and the Kabbalah and, you know, all the different aspects of the Golden Dawn and the theories and the teachings and the AA and working through the different grimoires and I put a lot of work into sigil work and, and I've developed that into other systems as I do a lot of work with the bind runes, with the elder Futhark of the, the, the Viking peoples of the eighth and ninth centuries. I, I work with the Celtic Ogham a lot and, or the Oam. And uh, I've developed my own sigilry work that I use for that when talking to the Tuatha de Danan and the, you know, the Celtic and um, ancient Irish peoples. Um, I do a lot of work that's I consider to be completely unique to my own style that I've developed and I uh, use that in my art. And um, I, I, I get nothing but compliments on that. I mean, all artists like to think that their work is shit most of the time and they go, oh no, it's not the greatest, I could do better. And I, I really do think I could do better because if I've gotten to where I am now doing what I'm doing, I can't wait to see where I'm at in 10 years. Um, and that's just it. I, I think getting back into the philosophy of magic, I think that you know, personal development is an ongoing thing. And if you can learn to be humble, admit that you're a dick or that you've, you know, or that you could do better or what is it that you're working on now and how can you develop that to be better for other people? I think magic is all about compassion and forgiveness and, and helping others get to a better place in their lives. Um, you know, it's not about your rank or your initiatory title or adept this or adept that. That's all bullshit in my opinion uh, the knowledge is what matters and what you use that knowledge for is what matters and if you think that magic's about having some initiatory rank or i'm in charge of this or i'm a part of that well then you're missing what this is about and if you think that's what it's about well then fair enough that's your path and that's your choice and good for you i just don't care i like people i want to know you as a person i want to know what your magic is doing for you and how you're using it to help others um, and if you're not doing it to help others, then you should really examine your work. <laughs> that's, that's just my opinion. Um, Shall we hear what, what, what 
Josephin Paladin says about initiation. He says, sure. do not seek any other measure of magical power, but that of the power within you, or any other way to judge a being, but the light he emanates. To perfect yourself as to become luminous, light and like the sun, to excite the ideal latent life around you. That is the entire mystery of the highest initiation. Oh, I like that. Um, I like that. A lot of a lot of the work I've been studying recently with initiation is evolving Abraxas, you know, is for, who I consider to be one of the the deities of initiation, Chinubis and Abraxas, and um, understanding my relationship with them, uh, because initiation doesn't have to take place in the temple or in order. Nobody, you know, if you really think that initiation has to be conveyed upon you or bestowed by some guy wearing a fancy hat, then well, that's being caught up in the, the ego trip of other people can give you something you can attain for yourself. Um, and you can attain for yourself. Initiation is education. Initiation is being exposed to something, a body of knowledge that you have previously not encountered and that guides you on a higher path towards a more illuminated place within yourself. Again, as Caroli always said with agape, with, with with love and compassion towards others. Um, you know, and like I was saying earlier, I'm not a thelemite anymore. I certainly was when I was younger, but I do think that a lot of those principles still comply just like many of the Golden Dawn principles still comply with our studies of magic. There's a reason why these systems are in place and have worked for a long time. And as long as you remember that the system is what we're talking about, not the people involved in it, because there's always assholes everywhere, um, you'll do fine. And um, I, like I said to you a few minutes ago, like I'm still, I'm still learning stuff. There's, there's the, this, the door is not always ever closed. And um, one of my favorite things to do these days is um, help my students learn about magic. And for instance, one of them asked me the other night, they're like, so are we going to do an initiations? And I'm like, well, why don't you talk to me a little bit about what you understand now about the TAPA system? And they went on and on and on and on and on. I'm like, okay. Now, a year ago, you didn't know anything about the TAPA system, but now you do. That is initiation, my friend. And yes, I could put you through some elaborate ceremonial ritual and put a blindfold over your face and then pull it off at a certain point and say, hey, you're reborn now. Congratulations, you're initiated, just like they do in Freemasonry and Golden Dawn and all the other organizations that I've witnessed. And college fraternities. Yeah, so many fraternities, right? It's like, okay, well, okay. And I said to my student, if you really want me to do that, I will. But the gift of knowledge and, and more importantly, your courage to follow the four powers of the Sphinx and to learn for yourself without me having to prod you or push you, you've gone and learned these things. I've said, hey, check out these books, study this, do this magic, you know, but it's, you've ultimately made the choice to do that. I haven't forced you to do anything. You, it's your own path. And that is your initiation. And if you want more than that, if you want me to put you through a ceremonial ritual, I will. But I don't think it's necessary. And I actually, you know, I don't entirely approve of formal, large, you know, ceremonial grand puha situations because there's always one guy who seems to think that he's better than everybody else because he's the one conveying the initiation. I just don't like that. I think that's an ego trip that gets involved with, you know, the development of the self. And I have to admit, I mean, there was times when I was younger, when I was in the Golden Dawn, and I was a Hierophant, or I was the second adept, or I was the Premonistrator, and I was teaching the lesser, like not the lesser, but the, the, 
the lower ranking students of the outer order or the, the, you know, the other adepts. And I felt great about myself. I'm like, wow, I'm super powerful. I'm super knowledgeable. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm this. And uh, that's awful. And I look back now and go, wow, what an ego trip that was. You know, what, a, what an opportunity looking back now to examine myself and go, you know, what was I missing there? Well, what I was missing was that that's not what that was about. And um, unfortunately, that attitude is very prevalent in a lot of organizations that I've encountered. And, um, you know, it's a trap, really. Um, I mean, in, in Regardi and some of the other authors, they, I mean, they just, they discuss this, where you get to a certain point on the tree of life in your initiatory path, and then you, your ego takes over, and you lose sight of your higher divine self, and you fall back on the tree of life, unaware that this has happened. And you become a black brother, you're, you're ego driven, you're no longer, you know, seeking the higher road, you, you are solely caught up in your own glory, your own as uh, General Custer was described as caught up in his own legend. Um, and I think that's a real struggle and trial that a lot of magicians face in, in the magical world. They are in love with their own glory, their own images. They've forgotten what they're doing magic for. It's all about who loves me that much. Who's got those likes on Instagram? Who's got those fucking thumbs ups on the, uh, the Facebook page? What has that got to do with anything? Yes, it helps you get your, your information out there. helps you share things. But what is the magic really doing for you? And is it about the magic anymore? Or, or is it about the, uh, the self-love? Um, you know, I was very much caught up in the self-love when I was a younger student. I didn't really understand, you know, the importance of humility and um, the importance of not having be the, you know, the guy in charge, which is part of the reason why I left those organizations completely. I consider myself a solo practitioner now, and I don't want to be a part of those organizations any longer. And they all have a great place. There's great importance. And if you can find that organization that you identify with, that'll help you learn magic, that will, you know, it will work for you, that will jive, I highly encourage you to do it. And like we were talking a little bit earlier with sex magic, like make sure your boundaries are there, make sure you're not doing anything that makes you uncomfortable. But, you know, being a part of a magical organization is incredibly important. Not everyone has the privilege of having a really wise teacher from a young age who can guide you into a good spot. And even though I had a really great teacher at a young age and who guided me through a lot of my young adult life, I, it still went to my head. I'm still ultimately personally responsible for my own choices, my own actions. And uh, it was only years later that I kind of woke up and went, you know what? I don't want to be like that ever again. I want to be a better person. And, um, and you move on, right? And you are ultimately only responsible for you. And magic can be an incredible ladder, a great tool in your toolbox of you know uh, whether it's a weapon for cutting through your own ego or as the buddhists describe it the zochen taboo buddhist cutting through the ego through attachment oh my god that's important when you really stop and think about it um even frater rc was just saying a few minutes ago how he got robbed and his um he lost his his loot i mean that's awful no i lost and, uh, I lost, I lost everything well you lost everything but you were mentioning your loot and and um, including bank accounts. Um, oh, I know. Right, it's the worst. It's the worst thing that. possible. Yeah. I've had a lot of things stolen from me over the years. And I look back and go, oh, my God. But yeah, I mean, well, hey, you know, actually, it's funny. You didn't even know it at the time, but you got to participate in a Golden Dawn Temple in North Vancouver that happened to be one of the ones with a ton of my stolen stuff in it. But you didn't oh. even know that at the time. And you didn't even met me yet. I was actually never involved with that temple. But you, you were I, at uh, the location. 
No, I never went to any of the you locations. Never went to the house? No, no. You know no, what's I ironic never. about where that house is? It's right next to the place that was the OTO oasis I was at, lived at when I was 10. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah no, I never got to, uh, I never met them in a, in a golden dawn. I knew who you're talking about, like the people okay. involved. Yeah, but I never, uh, I never did any real work with them in Vancouver. Um, I want to say before we moved on to, to your earlier comments, which were just amazing. Um, I don't know if I've told you this before. My, my, uh, my, my little cyber guild here has heard me say it many times. But um, this is just one of the most amazing experiences of my life. After I finished my Masters of Divinity at the uh, seminary, yeah. my spiritual director, the amazing human being, former Bishop of the Caribou Diocese in, in, in the Anglican Church of Canada and British Columbia. Um, yeah. He actually bankrupted his diocese intentionally so that the lawsuits by the First Nations would have money to pay them out, even though the Church, Anglican Church of Canada said, do not sell your properties so that we don't have to pay these lawsuits that have been won by the First Nations. He, he got his whole synod together of all his churches and said, what do you think? And they're like, let's sell all our properties so that we have the liquidity to pay the fine, the fees, the settlement, and we'll just operate out of uh, uh, community centers. And the bishop had to leave his diocese and go work at the seminary because they no longer had the budget to have a bishop, but they did that so the First Nations would get the money that courts said they deserved. I was like, this is an amazing guy here, right? He actually yeah. coincidentally was also the best man at my high school teacher's wedding in the Walder School 40 years before that when they were both Anglican priests in New Zealand of all places. And he told me after I graduated, but before I was uh, had gone further, he said, here's the thing you need to know. If you're not a priest walking into your ordination, you're not one walking out. Yeah. And I was like, well, some powerful occult shit there, brother. Yeah. Well, I didn't say that to the, to the right Reverend Dr. <laughs> D. Crookshank. Crookshank. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I miss um, that man every day. Yeah. Well, you know, priesthood is another one of those things. Like there's certain, like we were, I was talking a little bit earlier when I was having my long speech there about um, adepthood. Um, I do think that um, certain kinds of um, advancement can be recognized, like being a priest, you know, being an adept, um, you know, certain things can be conveyed to you within organizations and they have great validity. And, and you should be proud of the achievements that you, that you, you know, uh, incur upon yourself. Um, but if you don't have the privilege of being a part of an organization that can convey that to you, that doesn't mean you still can't get there. I guess that's what I was really trying to say with that is that, yeah. um, you know, knowledge, we're lucky, we're living in a digital world, you have access to things you never before, and um, you don't have to have that first edition choice primary source material book that gives you access to the information. You can just look it up on Google now. Um, the the verification of the you know the legitimacy of that work is could be held in question because you don't have the physical book in your possession. Um, but you the you know the the um, um, the veracity of your uh, the you know the conveyance of your adepthood or your advancement can be achieved whether someone says you are one or not. Uh, like personally, I feel like um, certain systems within the Golden Dawn convey adepthood. If you've achieved uh, a, a complete and working knowledge of the Enochian system, the Tadfas and the Athirs, and then you've done your HGA operation, who's gonna say to you that you aren't an adept? Honestly, because I don't know very many adepts that have done all four of those things back to back 
TATFAs, Enochian, Ethers, and then the HG operation and successfully concluded that over a course of how long it took them to do it. And then had some you know, arrogant prick walk up and go, well, you're not actually in a debt because you didn't do that in a magical order. Who's going to do that? And, uh, I, you know, if someone actually says that to you, then, well, they don't, why are you even listening to them, right? Your path is yours. And what, what you do on that, then that's up to you. And uh, we're, you know, as far as I'm concerned, all my brothers and sisters are the students of magic. And uh, what, whatever your achieved, you know, rank is or not, I don't care. Um, I think the, um, but there are specific milestones that you know, are important to specific systems. And it's, you know, I highly encourage people to continue to study and, and always explore, always ask questions, maintain your boundaries, personal boundaries and the boundaries within your own mind and, and what you're comfortable doing. Um, you know, there's definitely a certain path that, um, like I said, the milestones that are involved for, for advancement. Um, you don't hand the Enochian system to somebody who can't read Hebrew. You, you could, I mean, you could pick up the uh, Stephen Skinner's Practical Magic of Dr. John D. have no knowledge of the Golden Dawn whatsoever and do Enochian. It's possible. Um, now, whether or not you can scry or have, you know, clarity of vision is, you might be in question because you've never done it before, but with enough practice, sure. That's why I was saying earlier that like, I consider a system of magic to be more than just like Golden Dawn or AA. Like, the Practical Magic of Dr. John Dee by Stephen Skinner, that book, which he wrote, which I think is one of the best written books on the introductions to Enochian magic, because you can do the whole system with that one book. Um, it's much longer than the Golden Dawn version. Opening and closing a Golden Dawn temple to do Enochian takes about half an hour, start and finish, including the scrying, if you're really good at it. Um, but the John Dee version is gonna take an hour, maybe longer lots of prayers lots of invocations you know and then you're scrying and that can take as long as you choose it to just the same with the golden dawn work um, we, we, i mean one thing you should know i mean literally that's one of the main things we do here is purist enochian operations uh, yeah. on sunday classes sometimes we do fairy magic uh and sometimes we do we're gonna do we got some shem stuff we're doing for the rest of the month um yeah. but yeah we we do the pure stuff it's a lot of praying hey guys yeah yeah it's <laughs> Look at that face. That's the face of and someone who. And I, I personally like that. I mean, that ceremony <laughs> ritual, that, that powerful, yeah. even on fucking Zoom, which oh, yeah. astounds me to this. I, I still like, I said we're going to do Zoom cyber magic one time, one time. Maybe we'll do it another time. Who knows? It was so shocking to me how I was just expecting a lot less success than we found and so we're we keep wake up doing it once a month yeah well it's funny too because like um what i do at Oki in these days i actually do a combination of golden dawn aa and purist Enochian in my ceremony i include all sorts of things that don't need to be included but i do it because i like the the ritualism of it i like the um the inclusion of things that have worked for others before and so I'll put little snippets of other rituals into my Enochian opening um, because I like that. And it's that ritual mumbo jumbo, the theatrics, the that's because really that's what ceremonial ritual is all about. It's about developing the mind to a point where you're in that right headspace to scry so you can talk to the angels. Um, and I've experimented with Enochian where I don't do any ceremonies whatsoever and I just start scrying the angel and they still show up. 
<laughs> you don't have to be doing all the ceremonies once you've got a, a good control over your own uh, body of light. And that's just me. And I've, I've done it. I've called upon Axenor or Ahatega or, you know, Ledrum of, you know, and had a good time. And that, they've shown up. I've talked to them. And I'm like, well, hey, guys, you know, good to see you again. It's great. You know, I didn't do any ritual to bring you here. But you're still here. And I don't know if that's because I've done those seniors before. And so maybe the connection's already present. I mean, but it is interesting. Like, once you have an understanding of how the ceremony works, you can do it with or without the ceremony and it still works. Um, and now I just do the whole ceremony because it's fun. I like putting on the robes and, you know, hanging the banners and setting up the temple and then doing the work and enjoying all the theatrics of it and bringing myself into that, you know, that trance state, which is what all the Enochian is for and all the prayers and all the, you know, development. And then eventually I start to scry and I have a great time. And, uh, but I'm also by myself and <laughs> I live on a little remote island. I don't really have anyone else to participate with. And that's fun too. Um, and group Enochian is, it can be a great fun. It can be a lot of fun to do with other people. Uh, the first time I ever did Enochian with my teacher and his friends, um, you know, he guided me in a guided meditation to talk to El Hecteca, the Venusian earth uh, angel. And it was profound. And it's what convinced me to study magic. And I was like, oh my God, I was like 14 years old. My like, God, I need to know how to do this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I look back now and go, you know, that was awesome. And uh, it has its place. Um, and I've, you know, after 20 plus years of studying Enochian, I still study Enochian. I still pick up the books and learn more things and kind of think about new ways to go about it and go, hmm, I'm going to try that out now. Um, because why not? It's, it's fun. It's, it's about that, that love within yourself. It brings, it brings happiness into me, which of course then using the hermetic wisdom here, like you know, my microcosm fills up with joy and love and happiness and therefore my macrocosm floods with it and everyone's like oh wow you're really positive today i'm like you should be positive too <laughs> you're awesome because my <laughs> head's because my headspace is in a good space and yeah. I, I again that for me that a lot of that is what magic's about is you know, I, it's self-empowerment it's about you know being a good person and learning learning from that and feeling that and really feeling that energy that power like i do a I don't know, I'll do the, uh, um, the, uh, the, the John D book. And I mean, one, I remember one afternoon, this was a couple of years ago, myself and another friend of mine, uh, we decided to do the entire Enochian system in four days. All of them, all of the angels, all the spirits, everything. We just one after the pounced out every single name for each tablet. So in a four hour session, four hour scrying session, we invoked every single angel on each tablet and we did it all. It was like, and I, one of my friends asked afterwards asked me, he's like, so how did that go? And I'm like, well, I was like walking to an airplane hangar full of people and saying hi to every single person at the exact same time. Um, you know, as from a scrying perspective, it was overwhelming, but it was lots of fun. And uh, not many people I know can say that, well, I've done the entire Nokian system in four days. <laughs> how did that energy um, feel afterwards? It was profound, but it also was a little crazy. Hey. A lot of my a lot of my friends, like when I did the Earth Tablet, for example, a lot of my friends had started having dreams of gnomes and, uh, you know, my car keys were gone for like four days. I don't know what happened to them. I, I suspect that I, uh, I had some Earth energy messing with me. Um, but it was it was really fun. It was really, like, I think when I finished the Earth Tablet, I literally fell off my chair afterwards. I was like, oh, my God, I was reeling with the, you know, the, the just the, the energy itself in the room and all the different spirits all present and 
Um, it was a little, but we did it. The, the neat thing about it is that we started doing it on a Tuesday and we were done by Friday. We did it in four days back to back. Earth, air, water, fire, tablet of union. Boom. And uh, by Friday, I was just kind of like, oh my God, <laughs> oh, I'm a wreck. <laughs> I got to take a couple of days off here and do something else. Lots of... Uh, if you if you're don't don't be afraid of uh, that if anyone's thinking that's too crazy too crazy no jason Liu, let us never forget jason Liu. god bless that man he used to work at my buddy's bookstore here in vancouver banyan books go shop there buy online support them i just did i bought my Mo moses maimonides uh guide to the perplexed at their 20 percent off sale just to support my buddy's shop um will i read moses maimonides guide to the perplexed Hmm, that's a different question. But in the meantime, Jason Louv, when he first did, we all know who he is, right? He operated the all the Aethers in one night uh, against advice, he said, while on acid, while having group sex. Wow. <laughs> so if you think you're crazy, I give you Jason Louv. God bless you. Well, I don't, I don't think I'm crazy. No. I just think that that was, I just think that that was lots of fun. And it was a, <laughs> And I just brought, I only brought it up that, that experience because um, it's just a, another example of how it doesn't always have to be exactly the way, you know, the books describe it. You can experiment with the magic, you know, and now I don't, I do not suggest, you know, doing the clavicula, you know, uh, sorry, the Lamegaton, for example, and uh, you know, the Lesser Key of Solomon the King, and when Belial you're calling Paul and Belial. Belial asks for an offering. You don't carve his seal onto your arm with a razor. And that's just not cool. There's certain, you know, levels of experimentation that I'm personally, I don't approve of. Um, not on top of the fact that it's just madness. You just, just shouldn't do that. Um, you know, uh, but you can still have fun with, you know, angels are good creatures. They're not, they're not going to get mad at you. They're, the worst thing that an angel can do is not show up. Like really, that's <laughs> so you know, it, it just gives you an opportunity to think like, okay, well, you know, I, maybe I do all the angels on this Calvary cross tonight, or maybe I'll just ask all the seniors show up on this tablet tonight, or maybe I'll call up Ineb and do the tablet of union in reverse or, well, Ineb's on the top, but you know, you know, what I'm trying to say like you try, try it differently. Maybe call upon a, um, you know, one of the lesser quadrangles of the uh, one of the tablets during the wrong um, elemental tide. <laughs> See what happens, you know, like um, magic should still be fun and it, it should be serious. And when it's time to be serious, you should be serious. And this is one of the lessons that took me a long time to learn. I always forgot that, you know, sometimes when you're in temple, you should be really serious. I always thought it was so much fun. I was I got too over enthusiastic and I'm like making jokes and, you know, behaving kind of badly sometimes. And I look back now and go, oh, yeah, you should do that. <laughs> sometimes it's an important time to be serious and you should stay, stay serious. Um, you know, it's funny because, you know, one of my teachers, my, my first teacher, he used to continuously tell me to behave. <laughs> and I, uh, I look back now and go, you know, ah, God, I wish I had learned that lesson when I was younger. Um, but if anything, you know, I, I did learn it. And now I, I really have to emphasize that, you know, when you put on your, your ritual gear and you go into a formal temple, it's time to be serious. That's when the work is to be done. And, 
you can have fun afterwards when you're in your like social half hour or whatever. Your ritual's been closed, temple's been shut down. Now you're all hanging out and talking about how cool it was. Well, then then, then you can relax a little bit. Um, every organization's going to have its own levels of decorum, of course, um, and at personal etiquette and social etiquette. I mean, everyone has their own little rules, but um, never stop being you. You know, just remember that there's other people present and that maybe you being you isn't always appropriate. And, um, you know, people can be sensitive and great harm can be done without being, in, you know, aware of it. Um, and not that I'm suggesting that I cause great harm, but I have watched people, you know, try to be funny over the years and great harm has been done. And it took them years to then recognize that maybe I should go and apologize for things. Um, you know, like I was saying earlier, having the humility to apologize is one of the greatest strengths a person can achieve. And, and being able to own your shit and go, you know what, I did do these things and I am sorry for that and let me make amends. Um, and if I can't make amends, just at least be aware that I'm aware. Um, you know, it's, it's humbling, but it's powerful. And you learn great deals about yourself and your own capabilities if you can be honest with yourself. Um, and I think that's a big part of what magic's about is self, you know, self-understanding. I've, I've said before on this podcast, especially in the early days, I don't know why it was relevant oh. then, but yeah, um, stretch. But um, it's almost like this isn't the first time we've done this, eh? Uh, <laughs> um, I've said in the podcast, one of the secrets I found as an adult in life, one of the secrets to adulthood is to be able to look at someone and say, I'm really sorry. Yeah, absolutely. I fucked you know, up. Like My fault. Or your friend comes to you and says, you know, man, you know, you know, Fred RC, the other night when we were hanging out and we'd had a few drinks, you were a real fucking dick. And you did this and this and this and this. And you go, ooh. And be able to sit there and go, you know what? I hear what you're saying. And I remember doing those things. And I didn't realize at the time that it came across that way. And I'm really sorry. I will not let that happen again. Personal responsibility, acknowledge the person's feelings, try to do better. That's really hard to do. A lot of people are incapable of hearing that they've done something wrong. Or I go to them, or or they're so aggressive with people and they always, I love the term, they gaslight you. They make, they make you feel like, well, actually what happens really all your fault and I didn't do anything wrong because I'm perfect. And, um, you know, if anything, you should just keep apologizing because it makes me feel better. Like I know that I'm, you know, I'm illuminated. You're not. That kind of shit just does not fly with me anymore. I have no patience or tolerance for it whatsoever. And it's that's sad. the reverse. Uh, yeah, that's the reverse apology where it's like, I'm sorry that you got your feelings hurt. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry you feel that way. Well, that's not an apology. That's you just deflecting and gaslighting me. I got no time for that. You know, um, if, 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 if we propose that being able to apologize sincerely is, is a trait of, of true maturity. And I always loved Pearl Epstein. I think it was this, uh, old Kabbalist, uh, I think it's Pearl Epstein, it might have been someone else, referred, I, I was given a great list of books to read when I was 16 in Vienna and first studying Kabbalah with a Hasidic rabbi in Vienna, uh, Yonasan Gershom, um, who's actually from California and still lives in California. He must be very old. His main life's work was on re- studying the reincarnated souls from the Holocaust and a uh, very oh. interesting Hasidic rabbi, if you want to look him up, Yonasan Gershom. Uh, okay. And, He's, he gave me a great list of books. Pearl Epstein in one of the, I think it's that one, The Way of Kabbalah or something like that. 
Um, maybe it was nine and a half mystics. But in the first sentence, it said, spirituality is uh, like a, 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 or sorry, maturity is a spiritual choice, not a biological factor or a, the, the results of just time passing. Yeah. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't come automatically, which is why taking responsibility for our own development as human beings is so important. And that's why I'm so sad to see in this era where, where the ability to apologize sincerely just to another adult human being is so important. And it's important yeah. to say it to kids too. My parents never apologized when we were little. It was a really weird thing that I had to actually talk about in counseling for years because they never, nothing was ever my parents' faults. Like it was always our fault, you know? And they were, they were messed up and that's why they got divorced. So that's, that fixed that. Um, <laughs> but if we're, we now live in an era where apologizing, especially online, isn't seen as an apology. It's seen as kill me now. I don't deserve to live. And I'm telling you, admitting it to you. It's if people are attacked for apologizing. That's very scary to think that the level, general level of maturity on our planet has slipped so low that when someone says, I'm sorry, what people hear is get him. Well, you know, the another interesting side of it is that um is the over apology. You know, a lot of people say, I'm sorry to everything. And uh you know, oh, the sky is blue. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe it's a real Canadian thing, but I, I notice it all the time. And it what it's it's like saying I love you too much. It gets to the point where the, the words become meaningless. Yeah. And um, you know, like so I, I hear what you're saying, but the other side to it is that, you know, I'll go to somebody and say, Hey, you know what? Uh God, I've 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 really struggled trying to do things with you and you, you th this behavior keeps happening and I, I don't know what to do about it but I'm telling you that I, I really feel uncomfortable it really hurts my feelings and they responded like well I'm really sorry you feel that way but um you know it's kind of a big you problem <laughs> and you're like oh and but you you still want to be friends with this person for some you know weird masochistic reason and you continue to put yourself in a position where you're vulnerable and they keep hurting you and then they keep gaslighting you and you go well Wow, I've, I don't think ever, I've ever heard you actually say you're sorry. And I, uh, you know, not in any meaningful way. Um, and because a lot of people don't think that they have done anything wrong, even though they have. And um, I have a, I, a, a recent, um, I guess, I wouldn't even call him an ex-friend now, but um, this is only the last like couple of years. I met this guy and um, quite, quite interesting fellow, very, um, very much like me in a lot of ways, very, very extroverted, very, um, a big red beard, really nice guy, really. And, um, but the more I got to know him, the more I realized that, you know, he almost took like childlike pleasure in stirring the pot and meddling with people. Um, and he did and said, did and said several things on several occasions, which were really embarrassing that I was very uncomfortable about. Um, you know, it turned out he was actually very masochistic and not masochistic, sorry, misogynistic. And, um, you know, took a really, just real rednecky in his, in his behavior. So finally I called him on his behavior. I'm like, you know, man, I, when you, when we're hanging out and you're saying these things and you're talking about women in this way, or you sound like an incel asshole. And I, I'm honestly tired of it. Like, can you just cut that shit out? It's not funny. Uh, you, you're a racist and you're a misogynist and you're a dick and you're supposed to be this wise spiritual guru. And you're really not, you're this you know, closed-minded, unapologetic douchebag. And, um, and he's just like, oh, well, you know, like, 
you know, you can think that way, man, but it's all, I'm just kidding. I don't really mean that stuff. And then turns around and keeps on doing it. And I'm like, well, maybe that you can get away with that online, but you can't get away with that mean person. And all that's really going to happen is I'm just never going to speak to you again um, because I don't want to be associated with misogynistic incel racist assholes. And um, though he was very charming and he came across in a really, you know, positive, you know, supportive kind of way, once you cut through his ego bullshit, you really see that behind that mask that he had put on this show that, you know, there's a really undeveloped, you know, insecure, um, egocentric, you know, dick. <laughs> and um, he would attach himself to people that he thought would give him props um, and then try to bring them down to his level. Um, and it, I only mentioned this because, you know, when I was younger, I couldn't see that stuff. And I look back on a lot of friendships that I had over the years where I went, yeah, I must have made mistakes, but it couldn't just be me. There has to be more to this, this, not, this relationship not working out um, besides me just being a complete dick. Because I know I wasn't all the time. I was a very generous, outgoing guy. And I had my problems. I'm a Leo. God knows I'm arrogant. And, uh, you know, as my friends used to say to me that knowing Drew is to know that you're, he's right. <laughs> but um, I can see that now. Um, but I've looked at this pattern of behavior in friends that are no longer friends of mine over the years. And I realized that um, in many of these cases, I was just, I was being too nice and allowing narcissists to get too close to me and then letting them take my power and treat me badly. And then them victimizing themselves and making it look like I'm the bad guy. So they could continue to misbehave and treat other people badly um, while I've been scapegoated for their bad behavior. And I've seen it again and again and again. And I was talking about this recently with my wife and uh, with one of my instructors in school, who's a psychologist and because I'm, I'm, I'm studying counseling and, um, and working in counseling. And uh, we were talking about, you know, the, the, the nature of the narcissists, the borderline personality disorder, you know, the antisocial personality disorder, a lot of the personality disorders in psychology, and, uh, but mostly NPD, narcissist personality disorder, and how they attach themselves to people that they see as stepping stones to um, gateways to, you know, continuing bad behavior. And they get close enough to you, and then they gaslight you, make everything that they're doing your fault, and make this big public display about how they're the victim of your bad behavior. Uh, and then everyone's kind of left going, well, wait a minute. Well, we don't know. We don't think, you know, Drew's this way or, you know, Fred RC's this way. But we're so stunned from going, well, wait a minute. This, you're accusing me of all the shit that you do. And like, see, of course he's blaming me. And then he turns around and goes and does exactly the same thing again with 15 other new people who don't know him very well. And you're left having to do character rebuilding because no one trusts you any longer because they all think that you are the very thing that this narcissist is. Um, they're masters at manipulation. Um, it sounds frighteningly a lot like my old best friends. Well, it's funny because I've seen, I only, I bring this all up because I see this behavior again and again and again, especially with people who have gained too much power in their heads, right? Too much ego um, gets, they get overwhelmed and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm so great. I've done this and this and this, and everyone loves me. So I can just continue to behave badly. And I'm going to just make everyone feel like that it's always their faults. And I'm never at fault because I actually am amazing. And unfortunately, most people who suffer from these problems 
really believe that. They really believe that they are God's gift to the world and it's everyone else's fault. Um, and I've noticed in magical communities, especially these people are drawn to magical communities because there's lots of people who don't have a lot of self-confidence there. They don't have a lot of, you know, uh, understandings of boundaries. They go there looking for, you know, that magic cure. And, you know, the, the especially within the pagan communities. Um, and these, these narcissists or these, these, you know, ego boosters, these, these trippers of gaslighting manipulation prey upon them there. And this brings us back to our original conversation earlier this evening, when we were talking about sex magic. And, um, you know, it's, it's a being aware, it comes down to being aware of personal boundaries and being aware that um, always be vigilant because I'm not saying don't go trust people. Of course, trust people, you know, trust is, is love, you know, be, love people and trust people, but, but be aware that um, if that person, you know, like we were saying a few minutes ago, like taking responsibility for yourself and knowing how to apologize and knowing how to, to own up to your own behavior so you can help other people feel loved, feel better. The person who can't take responsibility, who can't own up to their stuff, who cannot, you know, recognize that they may have hurt somebody, well, you know, they're clearly missing the point of what magic's about if that's what they're proposing. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, and uh, I think a lot of people would need to understand as well, because I had to learn this lesson myself. Uh, aside from that first teacher, I also uh, fell victim to joining a cult by accident. Uh, I realized <laughs> it early on. I know, I love telling this story. Big brother's um, watching yeah <laughs> i i realized it from day one while i was there at this retreat and uh you know a week-long camping trip thing but after when i saw everyone else reacting and and kind of going along with everything like oh yeah i can really feel the energy oh yeah i can really tell the magic's working and here i am thinking that there's something wrong with me because i'm like i don't feel anything like what are you guys talking about um so this person is something I also recommend to people is that this person came across as uh, I am the, 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 the knowledge keeper and you can't get this information anywhere else. I know everything about it. And if you get it from anywhere else, it's automatically false and it's not true. Um, so one thing I've had to learn is that if you come across someone who claims to know everything, stay away from that yeah. person. Stay far away. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, I've God knows. I mean, I this goes back many years ago, but it wasn't about someone knowing everything. But I did meet the Messiah once. That was fun. Um, seriously, my one of my old friends and I, we were uh, doing interviews for um, you know joining Golden Dawn, and and um, anyways, we. Uh, we got this guy into the order and, you know, he, he presented well and he went through his neophyte and, you know, took care of his business, did his knowledge lectures pretty well, you know, and did his, you know, zealoter. And then he did his practicus and, um, no, he did his theorcus. And after his theorcus ceremony, we're all sitting there having a, you know, a beer and chat upstairs after we'd finished the ceremony. And, and uh, we asked him if he wanted to say a few words. And this guy stands up and he's like, you know, you guys should all be really grateful that I'm here. And uh, we're like, what? He's, he's like, you know, it's, it's really your privilege to be able to put me through this magic because um, of what I can bring to the order. And you know, we all kind of looked at each other. We're like, what? 
what are you, I, did I miss something here, bro? Like, what, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you know, like, I mean, you know. And we're like, no, no, we really don't know. We don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, he's like well, because well, I'm the Messiah. He said it just like that. <laughs> we thought he was kidding. We thought he was kidding. We're like, wow. Like, that's, I love that. That's fantastic. He's like, no, 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 no. No, I'm the Messiah. And you should all be grateful that I'm here. And we all kind of like, my friends and I kind of looked at each other. We're like, Ooh, oh, okay. Oh, well, sorry, your holiness. Um, I could imagine oh. the, like, just that awkward silence. Oh, after was, hearing him say that. I'm like, wow, I, I, I had no, I'm like, you know what? You're right. I did not know. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't recognize that. Um, that's great. Well, guys, that's a night. We'll, uh, we'll talk later. And we kicked his ass out so fast. We're like, okay, well, dude, you know what? Obviously this is not the right place for you. So, you know, you should move on to your own cult because, uh, um, we don't need any more messiahs in, in this organization. We've got enough of them. And, <laughs> and, uh, as far as I know, he went off to continue to, you know, expound his personal philosophies as the messiah. Good for him. I hope they all drink the Kool-Aid. Um, but, I you know. I, have a similar, I have a actually a similar interesting story that I'm certainly allowed to tell, but one of uh, my dearest friends in the entire world, and still to this day, a guy I love very much that we don't barely ever get to see each other that much, um, is, is Drew, or not Drew, uh, uh, Bryn Janelle Dittmars. And he was a member of Temple Tehuti. Uh, you'll understand in a second why I can say all this. And I think when he was, I met him, I was like 17, I was in practice. And he was in Zelator, and uh, when he was 19, I was 16. And I, I, we got to be very good friends, writing snail mails where he lived up past Anaheim Lake, past uh, Lillooet. Like, he was eight hours in the wilderness, 10 hours in the wilderness. Past Wait, who the, who past is this? Uh, his name is Bryn Janelle Dittmars. And he, when he was around 1920 and in the portal grade, realized he was the Messiah. Oh, yeah. Now, it yeah. turned out, and things, he had to leave the order, of course. Things got very troublesome. And things got far worse than that after in his life. Very frightening. And he found out he was schizophrenic. Yep. And I remembered when he and I were doing early uh, operations, he would actually be like, no, I see the fairy physically. And it's outside. I'm like, what you mean if you go outside, you'll see it it's still standing there? Like a real real fairy being, physical body? He's like, yeah. He ran outside and we were up in the top floor of this cabin 20 hours into the wilderness of Canada doing Celtic Mysteries operations, of course. Um, yeah, stuff, Castle of Heroes scrines. And uh, he was very good at scrying, but he also happened to physically see beings. And yeah. he went out, came back in, and he's like, yeah, I physically see it. But a couple of years later, he found out he was, when his life, when, you know, I believe there was arrests involved and stuff, and uh, got very messy, he found out he was schizophrenic. He now has a book called, I think, The Man Who Became the Messiah. Uh, on Amazon, you can read his life story. He's told his life story hundreds of times to nursing students and other other professionals. He's also one of the most amazing poets I've ever read. He's written epic verses, like he wrote a, one po epic poem called "The Book of Love." It's this thick. It's like three wow. inches. That book. He's one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met, and he got his shit sorted out. He's actually currently cured of of sight of schizophrenia. And again, he's very public about all this. I mean, he sells his books, so, so yeah. But, you know, he still can't go out at night and stuff like that or drink or do anything like that. He has to live a very delicate, careful life, I believe, but an amazing writer. So if anyone wants to go check out the writings of Bryn, B-R-Y-N, the Welsh word for Hill, Bryn Janelle Dittmars, D-I-T-M-A-R-S on Amazon, his support his work 
Reed is writing one of the most remarkable writers of the 20, 20th and 21st century, in my humble opinion. But That's yeah. very cool. It's funny you mentioned up at Anaheim Lake. I uh, I have family who have a Anaheim Lake. Anaheim. This is this is way more remote than Anaheim Lake. Well, you mentioned uh, Lillooet, right? Past uh, Lillooet. Yeah. So, Lake. like, I have family. I have a family ranch outside of Tatla Lake, um, which is on the road to Bella Coola. Which you you go up okay. to Central BC, take a left at Williams Lake, and you head out towards Bella Coola. You go past Anaheim Lake, and and then you get to Tatla Lake, which is like, it's a 17 hour drive from, from Vancouver. It's a long yeah, ways up there. Yeah. And um, yeah, my family owns a big, huge ranch up there. And they do, um, which is really cool. It's like a, the, the driveway alone, just to get onto the property is an hour long. That's the driveway. Yeah, yeah there's, um, there's nine foot tall potholes in the road that we had to take this truck down. And eventually you couldn't take the truck further, but a nine foot pothole that would sort of fall into and then like gun the back tires to shoot it up out of the front. But it's like literally, if I had fallen in it physically as a person, I'd be not certain I could get out. And it's just a pothole. I didn't yeah. think it could happen. It was it's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, it's it, that area of the world's it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, um, yeah, my family runs a big um, cattle ranch, and um, you know they have a uh, 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 I guess it's a bed and breakfast. They do. Um, um, heli skiing tours and uh, my uncle's a helicopter pilot and he has his own helicopter and he takes crews that come up there they fly from all around the world to come to his his resort it's called pantheon heli skiing in um at white saddle and uh you can look it up online it's got his website's pretty amazing um but they're you know you go in it's five stars the full meal deal you spend you pay, they pay a lot of money to go there for a week and then he flies you out to mount waddington to go heli skiing in like world-class conditions um and they, they used to be really big cattle farmers and now they're all, you know, the, the heli skiing is just so, you know, there's a lot of money in that. So um, most of their, most of the crews come from Sweden and Germany. They come to British Columbia to go and do their heli skiing adventures. Um, but I've been up there when I was younger, my, my family used to send me up there to go and do uh, ranching for my summer vacations, quote unquote. And my dad told me a built character. I don't see how getting up at five in the morning in the middle of August to go and carry pipes around and herd cattle is a good way to build character. It just made me hate life. But I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I look back now and go, that was great. You know, I'm, you know, I wasn't getting paid, but I mean, I'm riding around on horseback and herding cattle and it's a great experience back then. Um, most people pay to go and do that. And I was sent there as a, well, that's, that's what Drew's going to do. You know, everyone else got to go to summer camp and I got to go and, you know, throw hay bales. Anyways, um, yeah, magical training. Yeah. Can we do this question that's in the chat here? My question is about altars and can I mix tools from different rituals in uh, the same place? It directed to me? Yeah. Um, well, your altar is your altar. So for example, here's a great, here's a, I'll, this is coming from um, one of your students, Giselle. So Giselle, um, I have several altars in my house. I have an altar outside. I've got four inside. I have altars to specific deities. And then I have ritual altars where I, you know, I will construct the altar during the particular ceremony because it's really dedicated to that particular ceremony. So like, um, for instance, if I was doing the Ars Amadel, well, that's a very specific kind of altar. And I will construct that for that very specific kind of magic. I will not, I guess, pollute that altar with symbols or sigilry that really have no place within that particular system. 
However, in a personal altar, like it's an altar where, you know, you have a couple effigies or, or statues dedicated to certain divinities or, or deities, sorry. Um, you know, you might have, if you're a Golden Dawn adept, you might have your Lotus Wand there, but you also might have some of your ritual tools. But you also might have some crystal balls and some, you know, some, you know, a rosary or whatever. I mean, what people have on their altars, feathers and skulls. Mine are all covered in dead things. I got so many bones, I don't have to do with them all. Um, <laughs> um, can you have different tools, though, from different rituals in the same place? Absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't necessarily cross-pollinate particular rituals from, or sorry, tools from different rituals during specific rituals. Like if I'm doing a specific kind of ceremony, I won't have, like if it's all, I don't know, uh, it's a good example. Um, you know, like I'm doing you know, Goetia or I'm doing Enochian or I'm, and I'm, I'm working with, you know, Air Talbot and Enochian, I'm not going to have, and, and I'm, of course, working with the Sylphs um, I'm invoking the the prayers of the um, the air spirits from Eliphas Levy, and then you know doing my Enochian magic, and I have a a, a little little a tablet set up to show homage to the air spirits. I'm not going to have uh, you know a gnome sitting there with me, or uh, you know my water cup. I'm not going to put my water cup present with an air ceremony. It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But for a personal altar where you kind of have a little you know, mishmash, conglomeration of all the neat stuff that you've worked on and made for yourself. You might have your rose cross off the side or your, or whatever. You're, if you're doing Santeria, you've got different different um, uh, effigies present. Even if you're doing Condomble or Vaudun and you have, I might have a Vivir de Ezan on my altar right beside Baron Samadhi. Is that inappropriate? No, because it's your magic. And if you think that your tools have a place there, then they do. And maybe that's where, that's your little, like your kitchen of magical tools. And so when I want that tool to go do the work for something else, like I know where it is, it's on my altar. Um, does it affect each other? Like, will my air dagger fuck with my water cup because they happen to be on the same table? No, um, the, it would be messed with if some random stranger walked in your room, however, started touching your ritual tools. Um, which I just want to say outright right now, and I'm sure we all know this, but maybe some people don't, never fuck with other people's ritual tools, <laughs> ever. Never touch somebody else's magic. It's just, you know, it's just not appropriate. Um, certainly don't walk into the person's house and they're dumb enough to have all their different, you know, um, metallic seals sitting on a shelf with all their little Gwetic spirits carved on them. You don't walk over and go, oh, how cool. I like your coin collection. No, don't leave that stuff lying around. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> According to me, there's two kinds of magicians in this world. One who wraps their tools and talismans in linen or silk, and one who leaves them on their kitchen counter. Yeah, and you know what? I, uh, I've been both, personally. You can be both. But I, uh, I also live with a wife who respects my ritual tools and just knows better not to touch them. And when my children come over, I definitely wrap my tools all up and put them away because I don't want my kids having sword fights with my lotus wands like that. Oh, I can't even imagine how awful that would be. What are you doing? Put down the Mars sword. Oh my God, are you touching that right now? No, 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 no. Don't pick up my lotus wand. Oh my God, don't hit the cow with that. This is why you don't leave your ritual tools lying around. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I would definitely 
you know, if I had my own little private space, that's just purely mine, then yeah, I would definitely have an altar where I have a lot of stuff on display because I'm proud of it. I've put a lot of effort in making my weapons. And as I was saying earlier um, in our chats, this is what I do now. I make magic weapons. That's what I do. I have a lot of very interesting magic weapons that I've made and, uh, and they all hang out together. Um, and I personally think that's perfectly fine. Um, I don't know, how, like I said, I don't know I would necessarily have all these different weapons together if I was doing a specific kind of magic or certain kind of ritual. I would only have present the weapons or tools that would be used to influence or assist in the working of that particular ceremony or ritual. Um, but again, if, if the altar is just like a generalized altar that is dedicated to the things you believe in and you want to have your tools present to show off for yourself or to admire or to aid in the, the power that you're trying to create or generate or emanate off your altar, well, well, all the power to you. I think that's amazing. And I can't wait to see your altar someday. That'd be great. I'm glad you said that too, because uh, I recently, after a long period of time of like, one of these days, I'm going to put it together. I'm going to put it together. So I finally did, and it's got, it's actually right there. You see, there it is. Oh, nice, nice. Um, it's got a, for people who can't see, I just leaned far back in my chair I'm sitting on. Um, it's got a statue of uh, Tehuti on it. It's got my Tibetan Purba. It's got a, a little Catholic thing of, I don't think it's St. Benedict, but it's got the St. Benedict medal on it. A little guardian angel and a stone thing. And it's got a lot of things that I've sort of built a connection with over the years of dabbling. Absolutely. My personal altar, and it has for years, been a very pagan altar. I mean, I, my wife and I spend a lot of our spare time in the wilderness, and we do live near the wilderness. We're in the wilderness looking for dead animals. So my altar is like, I'll send you guys a photo of it one of these days. You can see what it looks like. I think I showed Blaine at one point because I have like, the largest bone collection you've ever seen in your life in one spot. Um, thousands and thousands of skeletons all piled in a giant pile at my front yard of my house where I have one of my altars. And um, like at least a thousand skulls all on one big huge mound. And um, which is my my altar to the horned god because I'm very much connected to Pan and Krinonos and Hearn and the, and the divine masculine. And that's my altar dedicated just to that one deity. And I was saying earlier that I've got a stone circle in my backyard. In my stone circle, I've got another altar. And that altar is dedicated to the Erminusil of Odin and Freya and Frey and Thor and uh, Baldur and Loki and all the Norse deities. And I have old swords that I've literally shoved in the ground around my stone circle where the, you know, with all the other bones and stones and such things. In my, inside my house, I have an altar. And that altar, again, is completely different. And it's a little bit more dedicated to Tuatha Day. I've got a a spear and I've got a sword and I've got a stone and I've got a cauldron and I have hag stones hanging from the ceiling and I, I want to see the the energy of the the Aishi and the Tuatha Day and the the you know the Fey realms flowing into my altar. What are hag um, stones? What's They've a got a stone? little hole that's like a, a a hag stone a hag stone is a is a stone like a rock of any shape or size it can be big it can be small but traditionally a hagstone is a rock where through natural occurrence, a hole has bored its way through the stone. And so you can see through it like a window. And mm -hmm. the Druids, like, you know, in the, uh, in the Hannes Taliesin and in the White Goddess by Robert Graves and in um, 
Fairy Faith in the Celtic Countries by Evan Wentz. Um, hagstones are mentioned several times. Hagstones are thought of as portals to the um, the world of the the non-physical, the the um, the fae, or and the the word the yrd the weird can flow through the hagstones and bring inspiration or um, you know divine inspiration to bards or to um, skulls. Um, hagstones would be worn on the belts of druids um, to bring the magical energies from the other side closer to them because it would flow through the hagstone through the natural portal um, it, and be near them. Hagstones can be placed in front of the windows of houses or worn around the neck and working very much like having a personal purba or puba. Um, the hagstone will allow positive energy to flow through the hagstone like a dream catcher, so to speak. And any spells or curses or negative hexes that are sent at you, the hagstone will literally shatter and repel that, that negative energy from you like a gargoyle. Um, it's one of the oldest Celtic and Proto-Germanic and Anglo-Saxon um, you know, concepts for like stone magic, like sympathetic or natural magic. Um, I personally love hagstones. I've been, I look for them all the time when I'm on the beaches. Um, they're quite fine. And you can find lots of different kinds of hagstones, but the, the best hagstones, in my opinion, are the ones that are like literally a natural rock with a natural hole. This has not been drilled. It's not some earthworm that's bored its way through a piece of clay over the last two million years. And so there's a natural hole through it. That's cool, but it's not really the same thing. You want to find a stone that has a natural hole. And in the, um, in Britain and in, in Scandinavia and in the Northern European countries, um, hagstones were river stones um, where a, a rock has been sitting in a little pool in the river and the river has had little pebbles swirling on top of that rock over the course of, you know, how many thousands of years and the river stones have a natural hole bored through the rock. And it was the river stones that were the hagstones or, or in uh, the UK, they call them adder stones. Um, but it's the same, same concept. Um, I didn't know they were called that. I'm so I'm so glad to learn something new here. I do I did I did have an old guy on Inishmore. Inishmore. Now yeah. Inishmore, of course, is not one of the good Aran Islands because, like my friends from Inisir say, well, it rhymes with whore. So what, what, what <laughs> do you want to know? They have a big well, enmity across the Aran Islands. But he, this old guy, was like showed me one once, and he said you lift it up to see the fae, and he he looked through the the hole in it, and I was like, really. You look through the hole in oh, the yeah. stuff. Hey, he's like, that way you'll know if she's just a slut or a banshee. Oh, God. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, he's trying to get laid. He's like 82 years old. Wow. I don't know if I agree with that, but I do know that, yes. And he doesn't it, want a fairy child because fairy in children. Certain, cool. In certain traditions, and I've read these in, in other books, that if you stare through a hagstone at a person, you can see if they shine or not. If they're if this is a, a person of the fae folk or of the she folk who's wearing a person's body as a mask, because um, they're going to try to steal you and take you back to the fae realms. They'd also look at them so you can see the fae realm itself and see if there's any magic present by using your hagstone as like a doorway to seeing if there's any um, you know magic nearby. Um, it's there, there's lots of little traditions that are surround the hagstones, the adder stones. If I believe every single one of them, well, cool or not. I've, I've always loved hagstones. I think that they're a really natural, magical thing that you can find. It's fun to look for them. I look for them on, on rocky beaches. I look for them in riverbeds. I look for them, you know, when I go for hikes and there's evidence that there's been water nearby, I'll go and take a little gander for some hagstones, see if there's one there. Yeah. They're quite rare. They are quite rare. I've, I've found, I mean, I've found dozens over the years, but I've been looking over the years yeah. for hagstones. I'm going to um, look. I'm going to look. Now I have a new activity when I go for my, my seawall walks. Oh, 
I, I live for it. My, I like, like I live a hundred, like maybe a hundred feet, 20 yards from a beach. Yeah. And my beach is big. Very do I. So do I, right? Yeah, I miss I, that. Yeah. I'm right across the street from a beautiful beach on the ocean. And I, I go there with my wife almost every day for our morning coffee walks. And um, we just walk out our front door hundred yards and there we are on the beach. And um, I love it. And we look for hagstones every day. And so I found lots of hagstones over the years, but I mean, I'm, I'm down there with literally eyes on the rocks every single day looking for them because it's one of my favorite things to do. And every day the tide goes in, the tide comes out, and there's poof, new hagstones. So it's a lot of fun. Um, I, I see that someone's posted a question on the, uh, the chat here. I'm just going to answer that one directly. So the, the question is, has your experience in Freemasonry influenced your understanding of magic? Has magic influenced your understanding of Freemasonry? Um, it's a great question. Um, always, you can always trust the Texans for the best questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Freemasonry and magic, it's, it's an interesting concept. I've, when I was a member of the, um, um, the Masonic Lodge of Research and Education, um, I saw a number of lectures presented by other Masons uh, discussing the, the relationship between the Masonic temples and, for instance, the Tree of Life, how the officers' chairs within the Masonic temple reflect the different pathways or the Sephiroth upon the tree. Um, you know, people have drawn um, all sorts of neat little parallels between a Masonic lodge or the symbols in masonry to, you know, the aspects of hermetic or esoteric magic from different systems. I mean, the Masonic lodge that I was initiated in, in Victoria, British Columbia, um, the ceiling of the Masonic lodge has the constellations of um, the stars that were present over Jerusalem at the temple of Solomon the King, um, which is super cool from like 2000 years ago and um, painted in gold leaf all over the ceiling with a big dark blue background. It's one of the most beautiful temples I've been in ever. Um, now, do I see the magic in the masonry? Well, of course I do. I mean, masonry is a long standing tradition. I mean, it's, it's not that old. It's only probably five, 600 years that they've been you know, continuously practicing what we now call modern Freemasonry. Um, and, you know, a lot of ritual work that we see today in different secret societies like the OTO, the Golden Dawn, the AA, I mean, I mean, most of the founding members of these organizations were Freemasons. So obviously where they drew their ritual work from or their, um, you know, their, um, uh, their grades, the, the way they go about doing their initiations, the, the, how they develop initiations themselves. I mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast how, um, you know, do I think that you need to go through initiation to be initiated? And um, I don't, but a lot of initiations can be run the same way. I mean, I've been through dozens of initiations that were first initiations, and the first initiations are always the same. I get led into a room with a blindfold on. I get, I get told a bunch of stuff. I see a bunch of stuff with my hands, and I get told what I'm seeing, and I repeat a bunch of things. I swear an oath. They take a blindfold off, and poof, I'm initiated. And that's very Masonic because they do that in the first degree of Freemasonry. That's not breaking any oaths because that's very well-published information. Um, hoodwinking and you know, cable toes and you know, swords being presented, threats of death being presented on you if you reveal the things that are entrusted to you in this secret ceremony. It's very common in a lot of initiations. Um, and a lot of that commonality comes from Freemasonry. So um, you know, my understanding of magic, you know, being influenced by Freemasonry, absolutely. Because you see again and again and again patterns of ritual behavior or 
um, systematic um, initiation through Freemasonry, and you see it again and again reflected in other organizations. Um, you know, has my understanding, my, um, has magic influenced my understanding of Freemasonry? Um, uh, sort of. Um, I guess the, the best way to describe it is that Freemasonry is, it, like among Masons, Freemasonry is described as the craft. You know, we have the 24 inch gauge or these, you know, the, to measure the hours of the day, we have the plumb rule or the square and compass to guide and level our actions and such things and all the different metaphors of Freemasonry. Um, and as I was saying earlier, magic for me is, is a development of character and morality that we use to govern our actions and be better people and help others and to understand our relationship with our own ego and ourselves and our attachment to things and 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 helping guide people towards a higher path of life and freemasonry for me is very much that um, it's a system of morality veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols it's a um, it's a, a, a society that promotes charity and goodwill and fraternal and sororal love with all men and women and uh, everyone is created equal under whatever god they particularly practice. I know there are Masonic lodges where they still in, you know, promote that you have to believe in the Christian God in order to be a Freemason. But thankfully in my jurisdiction, as long as you believe in a supreme power, that's all that matters. Um, you know, my knowledge of Masonry, I've been a Mason now for almost, almost 19 years, a long time. And um, you know, I've learned a lot in Freemasonry and I've learned a lot about myself in Freemasonry and how to be a good man, try to lead through right action. I mean, to define Freemasonry, a Freemason is a just upright free man of mature age, sound judgment and strict morals. And I've tried to live like that. God knows I've made my mistakes. I've been an egotistical, arrogant bastard for years sometimes. And I look back and go, oops, well, I mean, I'm only human. I can only learn from my own mistakes. And then I try to be a good upright free man of mature age sound judgment and Cross. although the irony is it took me a while to become of mature age <laughs> as my wife likes to say you know boys don't really get older we hit the age of 12 and we get bigger um <laughs> but uh i i do think magic has influenced my understanding of freemasonry i never really sit around and think about how does magic influence freemasonry for me but you know i i can say that you can draw parallels between esoteric societies of any nature with each other. Um, you know, it's very rare to find organizations where they are so different that it's, it's like, you know, I don't know, trying to compare TV to D&D. There's just, <laughs> there's just some things you just cannot do. And uh, you can try, and I'd love to hear that argument. But um, having I'd, just played our, uh ninth uh game session of curse of strad and fifth ed dnd last night yeah. which was a great much needed way to end the crazy day yesterday yeah um you know yeah we barely survived as every session uh because yeah. curse of strad and raven yeah. like it's like even the dm was like i don't even know why we're gonna play this session because you're just all gonna die and there's nothing i can do about it well it's it's funny you say that i'm i'm currently putting because I, I run DD as well <laughs> and awesome. uh i'm currently, I, I stream it too 
Yeah, yeah he I, was I, in a really good streaming game, actually. The Knights of what? Silver Moon? Silver Moon on Twitch. Yeah, Knights of Silver Moon. I watched it Tuesdays while I cook, or is it Tuesdays? It's on Tuesdays at yeah, yeah. Uh, 7 p.m. U.S. Central Time. Oh my God. Yeah, I play I, um, how much I enjoyed watching other people have fun. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't stream anything. I do live games. and um, But I, I've got a very small community of people who are all vaccinated. And we all hang out together and be playing D&D. And the, the campaign system that I use is Pathfinder, um, which really is just advanced 3.5. Um, but... Anyways, I um I'm currently putting my on, but I never got into Pathfinder. What is the appeal of Pathfinder? Say a few words. That way we can do a little segment clip on YouTube about <laughs> well Pathfinder uh, is Pathfinder is, is is Pathfinder's Dungeons and Dragons 3.5, but they've flushed out the game. They've put more system rules and skill point development into place so that the character sheets um, are far more complicated. Um, you, as the player character, the piece, the you know, the PC present, um, has a lot more options available to you to you know choose what skills to use. You know, um, they've they've did a lot more development into um, combat maneuvers and um, you know melee gameplay and magic. Magic was flushed out thoroughly. Lots more magic items. It's really just it's three point five. It's just bigger. They've just added way more to it. Um, I really love Pathfinder and I, I, I know the rules for 3.5 second and first editions. I can play 5e. I, I know the rules as well. I've DM'd all of them. Um, I'm a complete fanatic and I've been playing D&D for 30 years and I love it. Um, but currently I've, you know, it's funny. I, I'm putting my, um, my campaign of guys through the, the, uh, the granddaddy dungeon called Rappin' a Thuck. And um, I don't know if you guys have heard of that dungeon, but it's pretty famous. It was developed by the original creators of D&D. Um, back in back in first ed and and then they released it in 2006 2007 through frogmore games um to be um you know a bridge to the different systems you can buy it for 3.5 5e pathfinder um but rapid effect is a single campaign dungeon with 65 levels and with random wandering monsters and you're in, you know the, the 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 first like two chapters of the book is called dying outside the dungeon I mean, you're going in there and you're getting, it's a meat grinder for PCs. Um, I saw this great meme and it shows this, this, uh, this guy that says, you know, it's like, uh, um, oh, wow, we had a great first session and we didn't die. Everything's great. Oh, rap pathogs can be awesome. And the DM's looking at them going, uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it's going to be. Um, every time I've played with these guys with rap and a thug, we haven't, we've come close to full party wipes almost every single game. One guy standing, and it's usually my NPC, which is a paladin. Um, but otherwise, so when you say random encounters, do you mean like when there is a encounter, you roll the dice to find out what they're going to fight? Yeah, yeah. Oh, but like, for instance, <laughs> the game is tailored like you cannot enter the dungeon, and it's a big freaking dungeon. There's 65 different levels in it, right? And each level, whether it's level one or level 62, um, is not tailored based on the depth of the dungeon as to the challenge rating of the dungeon itself. So level one could be challenge ratings for, you know, three to five levels, three to five. And you go down to the second level and it's now a challenge rating 19. And then you go down to the third level and you go through a teleport and you're down to the 14th level, which is a challenge rating 22. And you're like, oh my God. So the poor characters, they're like level three and they're like, oh, let's go inside <laughs> this hut in the woods and we'll go down these stairs. Oh, look, a tunnel. They go to a tunnel and there's a bone creature that eats them. They're all dead. I go, oh, sorry about that, guys. 
And I'm like, I guess we start again. And uh, oh, you've respawned a different area the outside of the dungeon. They're like, okay. They walk about 25 feet in the woods, and yeah, there's a Balor standing there, kind of like, well, oh, it my and they're all dead. So it's great. But <laughs> um, and there's actually at the back of the of the uh, the compendium for Rapid Thuck, there's an actual whole section called the obituaries where you write down how people die. Um, Anyways, going back to magic, I actually really like Dungeons and Dragons because Dungeons and Dragons is actually the best fun for the development of imagination, which could be used for visualization, which could be used for magic. Freemasonry can influence magic, but so can Dungeons and Dragons. Just saying. Um, you got to say my biggest qualm. This is the first uh, since since I since COVID and being back in Vancouver. It's the first time I played fifty because I'm three point five till die till I die. But yeah. but I've actually I'm I'm glad that fifty is okay. It's playable. It's actually good in a lot of ways. Um, I find it to be very. Fourth Ed was not even playable. No, no. no it was terrible. Well, I, I don't. I don't want to discuss Fourth Ed. It doesn't exist no, as far as I'm like, concerned. That's like masturbating without genitals. No, no. That's but fifth edition, I find Five E is is actually. I don't particularly like it that much. I find Five E is almost too simple to do. Yeah. I find Five E is like they tried to bring D and D back down to the twelve year olds, which is why I play Pathfinder. Because yeah. I like having the complicated rules. I like having the really intense, you need to know a lot. You need to really know your game to get into Pathfinder. Whereas yeah. like I can play 5e with my 12-year-old my daughter and my nine-year-old son and they get it. So it's a great game for introducing people great. into d and great to get into role-playing. Yeah. Uh, we, we, yeah. like, we were big Merp fans and back in the day. Merp was one of yeah. our favorite games. Gerps, Merp. Merp yeah. was Middle yeah. Earth role-playing. Oh yeah, yeah. And it yeah. was based on the rollmaster system, and like if you fumbled, you'd roll on a a d hundred, and like half of the results were like impale self, bleed out slowly until you can crawl <laughs> to safety or you die. And that was like that was if you got a good roll. <laughs> like yeah. it was crazy. But the thing well, I hate most about fifth edition, I just got to say this, is the skills. Skills are one of the most interesting things to develop your character. And in fifth ed, skills just aren't really a thing anymore. They're basically like a fine tuning of stats and attributes. And, and you can't really, you don't really get more points in them. You'd have to use a feat slot to get them. It's just ridiculous. I suggest house rules to everyone. Yeah, they reduced a bunch of them into anyway, like that's a my, singular one. Since we're doing a segment on it, I got to air that. Well, I, I just, I just going to say that I, I, I would love to do uh, like a three hour chat on Dungeons and Dragons, but we are supposed to be doing a magical podcast here. So let's get back. I like to, as much as and I'm sure, and they, they may not own up to it or not, but you know, lots of people who are interested in magic love D and D, but we don't have to get into that tonight. Um, not going to speak, not going to speak for the others. Um, I do agree with you though. Fifth ed does have like a terrible skill set. It's one of the reasons why I like Pathfinder because the skill list is like this long for each character. Um, well, the other nice thing about anyways. playing 3.5 and third ed, 3.5 and third ed are fully compatible. This is the same thing in case you're a new person here listening to us to learn ritual magic and realizing, oh, maybe I should just play D&D instead. Well, yeah, maybe you should. Um, maybe yeah. you should. Maybe you should. You'll probably, uh, <laughs> you're, uh, I don't know, but you, the great thing. Although I, I, I would like to just, as a joke here, and I just want to throw this in as a little addendum there that. Warning, warning, joke, joke. Warning, warning, joke here. Uh, becoming an adept might take you five years. Well, it's going to take you about five years to become a 20th level magician in Dungeons and Dragons too. So in all fairness, like it's about the same path. You might as well study your Hebrew. Just saying. Right? <laughs> 
You hear that, folks? <laughs> I'm not the only mad fucker who's telling you to learn the Hebrew alphabet. It really helps. And I don't know how you can do your LRP without it. But anyway. I don't. Well, you can. You just uh, like utilizing the Hebrew. Well, it's the funny thing is like, I, I have a student right now and he's kind of struggling with his Hebrew. And he asked me, he's like, you know, do I really need to learn this? And I'm like, yes, you really do. And he's like, but I'm not Jewish. I, why do I need Hebrew? And I'm like, well, you're, it's a very valid point. You're not Jewish and you don't need to, you're, I'm not asking you to study Hebrew because I'm going to give you the separate zero and say, give me a 35 page paper on gematria. Like, it's just not going to fucking happen. I don't want you to do that. If you want to go right ahead, but I don't require that of you, but you need to understand that the, the, the Hebrew letters come up again and again and again when you're studying Western hermetic magic. And if that's a path that you want to study, you, I mean, just be lucky that we're not expecting to learn Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. Like Hebrew is fine. And uh, if later in, in your studies, you get to the adept grades and you want to stop using Hebrew, go right ahead. Pick a different language. Like, look at me. I spend more time working with the runes, the, the Elder Futhark and the Viking runes and the Celtic Oum these days than I do with Hebrew. When I'm teaching my students magic now, I actually have to go and give myself little refreshers occasionally about the, the mother letters or, you know, the proper spelling of different names on, you know, in different in different systems, because I just I just don't spend a lot of time studying Hebrew anymore. Kabbalah was never really my thing, but I know enough to read and write the entire alphabet and I can read it. I can. Well, I, I don't have to talk about my, my knowledge of Kabbalah. I know enough to get through it and use it magically. And I understand its importance and its involvement in magic, especially in ritual magic and in the systems, because most of the grimoires use Enochian for almost everything. And um, when you are doing advanced magic, you're doing, you're scrying, you're in the spirit vision, you're in your body of light, um, you can vibrate and visualize Hebrew while vibrating. So for instance, if I'm saying, um, you know, I'm in a, an angelic ceremony, for example, I'm doing Enochian and I'm, you know, trying to view a, a particular entity, I'm, I'll just, I'll just go back to using, um, you know, Excel, Exotical, um, one of the kings. And I'm, I'm talking to the king of the earth tablet and I'm like, okay, Exotical, you know, um, you know, show me something. Like I say the three holy names of God on the earth tablet, Immortal Hectega, and I say, you know, appear before me, Exotical, and I get a pyramid. But it's kind of fuzzy. It's kind of wavy. I can then say the three holy names of God from the you know, the banners of, of, of the North on Memorial Haga and get my earth thing going on again. I can also at the exact same time visualize the Hebrew letter Beth. And while saying the names, I can vibrate it and see that letter project out of my forehead or make the sign of the enterer and project it at the fuzzy image. And as the Hebrew character strikes the fuzzy image and I say the three whole words, it solidifies and brings it into a more cohesive image for me. And you can use the letter Beth to help bring clarity during spirit visions. Um, and there's other characters that do other things when you're scrying. It's just a, it's one of the techniques that you can study and learn when you're doing scrying with the spirit vision and using Hebrew characters to help you. Um, another example is where um, you are doing your LRP and you are saying, before me, Raphael, behind me, Gabriel, blah, blah, blah. If you want to take it to the next level, step up the game a little bit. As you say before me, Raphael, as you say the words, Raphael, I will actually visualize Raphael in Hebrew, leaving my mouth in each separate letter, 
and it's the actual physical substance of each character in, that's coming out of my mouth as I'm saying it, because I'm visualizing these three-dimensional little Hebrew figures leaving my mouth that create the angel in front of me. They strike the um, the the um, the pentagram, and in, and it turns into the angel. And then the pentagram is like a little shining star on his forehead because he's so gigantic. Um, or they're so gigantic. I guess they're kind of androgynous, but anyways. Can I show um, what I've been doing recently with that? It's, it might be interesting and on topic. So I've been recently experimenting with the slightly older LRP uh, technique of, they used to apparently in the original order see the archangels not in the way that we see them with the appropriate colors and all that, but they would visualize them as <laughs> pillars of white light in all four quarters. Apparently this is how they would do it, how Yates and Crowley would have done it. So what I've been experimenting with is when I see the pill, I see the pillars of light, four pillars of light around me, of course, which is reminiscent of many adept rituals, um, just projected out a bit. So then when I'm at, when I say before me, Raphael, um, as I'm vibrating, I see the letters chisel into the gold column, like sort of a doorway or a form, and out of that white pillar of light form steps Raphael facing inward as as, and then I see him with, of course, the the yellow and the purple robes and the yeah yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I and like, that's, and that's what's really fun about um, once you really know your Hebrew is that you can then incorporate it into your magic, um, and it just adds that little little extra mm -mm, um, to flush out what you're doing to make it a little bit more special. Yeah. But at the same time, like advanced uh, visualizations for a lot of the ceremonies, whether you're doing the Supreme Vulcan Ritual Pentagram or the Greater Ritual Hexagram or your you know, the analysis of the keyword, which is not really an advanced ceremony, but it's something we all use. Um, you can add things to the visualizations as you flush out your knowledge of, um, of what you're seeing. And you'll find things will flicker into place. And if you don't have working knowledge of those things, they'll just stay there flickering. Then one of these days, you'll actually memorize all that stuff and it goes... <sighs> And it becomes a cohesive image that's been sitting there waiting for you to see it the whole time. And the reason why you haven't been, seen it, been able to see it before is because you haven't learned it yet. And, but it's there. You just can't see it quite yet. And the minute you learn it, it shows up and you go, wait a minute. I wasn't trying to see that, but now it's there within my visualizations. That's pretty cool. Then you recognize it. You do a little research and go, oh, well, I got to study that some more. What else am I not seeing? What else is present? It's like the neophyte who goes to the, the first grade of the Outer Order of the Golden Dawn. And afterwards, I'm like, so how was it? And they're like, oh, it felt so spooky. I felt all this great energy happening. Because they're completely unaware that at the same time they're going through the ceremony, there's three chiefs on the dais doing divine liturgy, visualizing God forms the whole time and maintaining them, who are all peering down and being participant within the, you know, the, the enter, the candidate, the, and the rest of the ceremony. All sorts of stuff is going on behind the scenes that the adepts are controlling and working with to aid the hierophant as they're conducting the initiation. And the neophyte is completely oblivious, but the magic's still there. And it's still happening. And as you study more and more about the magic, you learn more about the initiations, you learn more about the ceremonies, you realize that this is happening and you go, wow, and now I can see it too. And when I say, hey, what, you know, um, I'm doing this and this and this, and I'm invoking this and this and this. And, you know, what does that look like for you? Write that out in Hebrew for me. And you can't because you just couldn't be bothered to learn it. Um, or 
you know, vibrate this in Hebrew and you'll get this result. And they go, oh yeah, I don't, I don't know about Hebrew yet. I'm like, and you're studying this stuff? You should really put a little effort into that. Um, you know, if you want to study magic, you want to study this kind of magic at least, um, this Hebrew is a big part of what we do. If you don't want to use Hebrew, you want to use ancient Greek, be my guest. Go right ahead. It doesn't matter to me. I know what I'm doing and that's what I'm doing and just how I do it. And I was trained to use Hebrew, so I use Hebrew. If I want to undertake the gigantic project of taking all the Hebrew out of the Western esoteric mystery schools, replacing with ancient Greek for everything, well, okay. I actually love to read that book <laughs> and all the justifications as to why that works. But, um, you know, do what you got to do. But to begin, yeah, learning the Hebrew alphabet's really, really simple. Learn 10 letters. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vau, Zayn, Cheth, Teth, Yud, and do it in a sing song or in a rhyme or however you want to learn it. But it's just 10 letters and 10 numbers. Come on. It's not that hard. You can, you can do it. My, I'll give my example, which I did before, but no one will hear that because, you know. Uh, yeah, this is what I did. Just walking from the bus to the sky train to the temple every week for Neophyte. And then I'd start again. And that worked. That worked. I don't know. Yeah. But you and know, you, I, I don't require anyone to learn Hebrew in this hermetic mystery school. I don't require anyone to learn anything, as a matter of fact. No. Um, especially since your path, like, like uh, David Soul here, I don't think, uh, you know, it you're, you're, you're dabbling in some of the hermetic golden dawn rituals, maybe, but it might not be your specific path. That's fine. There's a lot of magic we do here. There's a lot of languages you can adopt to be right. your primary magical languages. Um, and me personally, I rely a lot on intuition. So whatever feels right, a lot about feelings, and that's what I kind of start to focus on. But I did do a random Hebrew, learning a Hebrew thing years ago, just because it came up on meet.com. Um, and I'm like, hey, I don't know Hebrew. Sure, why not? I'll just join it before I even realized that, oh, wow, there is a lot of Hebrew in, in these different- you know, Studying uh, Western magic, not knowing Hebrew is going to hamstring you. Just like uh, so much other not modern nonsense will hamstring you. Like if, 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 you're, if, you, if you're using words, or if you're choosing to interpret words in ways that they don't actually mean, like currently it's more popular to interpret the word invocation as summoning a spirit into your body. And it's, that's just fucking bullshit. No. And, and, and I, I have had talks with pe many, many people over the years about this. I'm like, yeah, you can keep telling people that and you can actually use that word to describe that thing. It's not invalid if you want to uh, uh, reappropriate a word to mean something that no one else thinks it means. I mean, maybe you could call that emancipatory reenactment. I've heard a philosopher call it that once. And sure, but the problem is then when you go and read the Western histories of magic, and read the grimoires and you see the word invocation, you're not going to know what they're actually talking about. You're not going to realize they're talking about an appeal to or a prayer to a god. You're going to think they're ta you're talking about summoning a spirit into your body, which is not what they're fucking saying. Yeah. So, and, you know, and, and that's, and, you know, you're absolutely right, Fred, RC. The, the definition of terms is extraordinarily important with the conveyance of information. If you don't understand the terms that are being used and the definitions which they're being applied, and then you try to use that for your own reasons, you're going to just be lost, or you're going to misappropriate or misinterpret or misunderstand. You know, studying Hebrew, <clears throat> it's not necessary for every system of magic. 
Um, it's really not necessary for you know, many of them, but but if you want to study the Western Hermetic, the Western Hermetic mystery traditions, um, which includes things like the Golden Dawn, you kind of have to study Hebrew. It's a big part of the systems. We work with the Judeo-Christian, mystical Christian, you know, approach, and that involves studying the Hebraic, you know, languages. But you know, a lot of other schools use other languages, like the Wiccans, for instance, are very fond of the Theban language. Um, I don't really think of it as a language, it's more as an alphabet, but they use it a lot, it comes up a lot. I know a lot of magicians who use Theban. I, I don't particularly like reading, writing Theban, it's always, the, but it's, I mean, weird. it's weird because it's actually Hebrew. Well, yeah, but they call it Theban and it's, it's just a, you know, it's like, um, what's the word? It's like um, the cipher text the Masons use. It's just, you know, a representation of the same thing, but they like Theban, they use Theban, that's fine. You know, Theban, good for you guys. I don't like Theban. You know, I don't particularly like writing out a Nokian either for that matter, even though I know it really well. Um, I'll just write things out in English. I, I don't need that. to use some mystical language to get things to understand what I'm trying to say. I mean, I, I haven't, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert in Enochian, for example, but I, I know a few words and I can recite out some prayers off by heart if I want to. And, you know, I have to call the 30th theories pretty much completely memorized, but just because I did it so much. Um, but most of the time memorization through practice and not by rote yeah right so like i i advise people to try to really get into whatever they're studying because the more you're into it the more you're going to be better at it right if all you're doing is reading from a book the whole time you're not really thinking for yourself you're not really you're just regurgitating somebody else's work um and that's important as you're training as you're studying the different systems that you know you're studying astrology where you're not going to invent astrology or take your own take on it right away you're going to study astrology and get good at it and then maybe start applying some of your own ideas to the system that you understand um i you know you mentioned intuition well i think intuition is part of all magic you should not if it doesn't like i was saying to you guys earlier if it doesn't feel right don't do it period um but, you know, I, for instance, I really fascinated and I've spent a long time studying Vodun. And, um, but I don't particularly have many Vodun altars set up around my house because I don't practice Vodun. It's a religion. But I, I'm not a member of that religion. I'm a Catholic. But I like Vodun. I like studying it. Um, I'm not particularly going to go and set up my own altars to, to the Vodun, you know, to the... Um, 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 the loa i'm not gonna have the loa all around my house i think it'd be really cool but i'm not going to <laughs> um but i'm still fascinated about it if i'm gonna go plant tomatoes in my garden i might put a little sigil of Izan in there because they're the god of the harvests and i might do that just because the loa are present i mean i think uh, wade davis said it the best where he's like why would you go to church to worship god when you go to church to become god i'm like yeah i like that that's cool but um Again, language is an interesting subject when it comes to magic. And, um, you know, you can pick which one works for you. Like, um, I'm sure there are several members on this chat right now who speak other languages that I do. Right? I, I spoke, speak pretty much just English. I know a little bit of Spanish. I know a little bit of Latin off by heart. But it's rare for me. I'm not really a linguist. It's never really been one of my gifts. I know some people who speak eight or nine languages. And I think that's really cool. Um, I understand a lot more than I... I can speak, um, but it's just never really been my my personal gift. I think when studying magic, however, if 
the system you're studying requires you to learn a specific alphabet because that's part of that system, then you should do it if that's the system you want to learn. Like Frederick R.C. and myself have spent years studying Golden Dawn work, and we were required during our studies to learn Hebrew. Um, now, do I spend all my time learning Hebrew? No, and neither does he probably. Like, I'm not speaking for you there, but it's just not, I'm not a Kabbalist. Uh, I use it. It's a tool that's part of my toolbox, but I just don't spend personally all my time studying that language. But I do understand its importance and its need within the style of magic that I do practice. Um, and if I was going to go and study um, traditional British witchcraft, I'm pretty sure they have their own alphabets that they use that aren't Hebrew. Um, no different than if I was going to learn Santeria or Condomble or Hoodoo or any other um, religion like Wicca that uses magic as well and has their own, you know, traditions and alphabets that go along with it. Um, yeah, most seminaries uh, require Koine Greek and ancient Hebrew mandatorily. You can't get a master of divinity and be a priest without them, most schools. Um, and, and what was actually really interesting to me was when I went in, when I, when I, was, when I started my Hebrew at grad school, because it's just a regular grad school master's level professor teaching it to you, there was prerequisites involved. And I didn't even read what they were. Yeah, I didn't even read what they were because I was like, oh, I already have the basics of Hebrew. So... I'll just show up to class and I'm sure things will be fine. And I showed up to class and I was shocked that all my classmates, not only did they know the alphabet, what the letters meant and what their numerical values were, they knew all the vowel markings as well. And I was like, oh, motherfucker, I don't know the vowel markings. So literally everyone else in my Hebrew classes, 35 other seminarians, you mean the who, all get, who all have to get a passing grade or yeah. they fail their MDiv or have to take that course again, which it's a two-year course, so you don't want to have to take it again. Or you can do it in 12-hour days over 30 days. Same test, though. You have to pass the same test as the two-year people, so it's whatever. But I was like, holy shit, the prerequisites for Golden Dawn Hebrew aren't even equivalent to what you are required to know before you take your first college class in graduate-level Hebrew. So it's like, it's, it's not that much. It's not that much is my point So to learn it you know, to get that basic shit down. You don't have to learn the language. Like, that's not necessary. It's yeah. lovely. No, no one expects someone to pick up the Torah or the Talmud um, and uh, <clears throat> read it in Hebrew. Like, come on. Like, although that being said, I have a good friend who initiated in the GD. This was years ago. And he fell in love with Hebrew. So much so that he went back to school and did his master's in the Judaic studies became a rabbi and now teaches rabbinical studies in Kabbalah. And he reads and writes and speaks Hebrew better than anyone I've ever met and goes and does lectures. Like this is his thing, but he got obsessed with it when he's starting his neophyte in the golden dot, which is really cool in my opinion. Um, and uh, he, it just became his obsession and, you know, good for him. Um, and, you know, I have another friend who joined golden dawn and then they got really into studying Alistair Crowley's versions on yoga and quit Golden Dawn, quit talking about magic altogether, became a yogi, moved to Thailand, and he now teaches over in Thailand. Um, you know, we, we all have our little interests, our own little things that make us go, ooh. Um, it's about finding what that is for yourself and, and sticking with it and having the dedication to stick with the things that you find make you happy. And, you know, 
I get my rocks off reading ancient texts for my people who've been dead for a long time. And uh, my wife looks at me and goes, what are you reading that for? Again, you get it, Drew. And I go, well, I like reading this stuff again and again and again. Um, it's like, um, this is great. Aristotle. yeah, there's this great quote at the beginning of um, one of the books that Skinner wrote called the, uh, uh, I think it's, I think it's the beginning of the keys, the gateway of magic, the summoning of the archangels and the demon princes book. It's like the book two of the source work series by Stephen Skinner. There's a, a quote. Book, what? Is that a good book? It's not bad. I've worked through it. It's very interesting. It, it was a different take to the whole matter that I that I had had before. I didn't spend a lot of time on it. I moved very quickly onwards to the other books, but um, it was. I'm just. I bring it up because at the very beginning, there's a quote that's from Dr. Thomas Rudd, and um, he is. It's a quote of Rudd, and the, the quote goes: um, "He who is a magician is brought forth a magician from his mother's womb." And he who is not makes up for this defect of nature by education. And I love that. I'm going to have that put on my tombstone. Um, what a great, great quote. He who is a magician has brought forth a magician from their mother's womb. And he who is not makes up for that defect of nature by education. It's just so true. Because I've met people who are gifted seers, mediums, you know, born adepts. People walk into magic. They're just prodigies. They get it. I don't ever show them anything once. I showed them the LRP and they haven't even read it yet. And they're, they're mimicking me and doing it perfectly, reciting it off heart because they have photographic memories. Some people are just really, really good at it. And some people really, really struggle at it. And But they stick with it. They dedicate themselves to it. And in a couple of years, they're adepts and they know just as much as anyone else. They can really you know, slag their magical genre conversations with anyone else that I can talk to and add their own points that even I haven't thought of or anyone else has thought of it before. And they go, wow, that's so cool that you look at it that way. But magic is a study of patience. And it's honestly a study of reading. You read all the time. That's why we see wizards and they're all fucking old. They have long gray beards and they pointy hats and they sit in like, you know, dim rooms they can barely see. And they're like, oh yes, the magic. And they're like that because they've probably spent the last 80 years studying books to be considered wizards. I mean, it's not a simple, easy thing. It's not like, like I've met so many um, people who get into studying magic, quote unquote, and they, they want their grand title. I want to be the grand puha, the, the Lord Elk, whatever. And uh, it's like, well, okay, you know, just give yourself the title and move on, bro. You know, I'm not going to give it to you. You know, I think of the word adept as a reflection of a certain amount of time studying and, and learning the material and being able, not that the, the term adept means that I am now better than you. I see the term adept as like teacher. You are now responsible for helping educate those who are starting that path. And so as an adept, all it really means is it's a certain role of responsibility that you A, help people understand boundaries and their relationships with what is magic and, their, and the path they're about to begin, help guide them to the right books away from the fluffy garbage that's out there like Sylvia, Pla Sylvia Brown, sorry, and their, the weird ass, like, I'm gonna talk to my angel and I'm gonna help you, I'm gonna remote heal you. God, don't get me started with those, those fakers. Um, but I'm a, an adept's job is to teach with, with you know, high morality and good boundaries and help guide the students towards the right books that follow the interests that they're interested in. And, um, you know, to, to be that guide, that guide that you wanted to have when you were first learning. And um, like, oh, 
you know, I know some people who, who wanted to study magic and they just gave it up because they couldn't meet anyone who could just take the time a day to talk to them. And I've also met other magicians who are like, oh, well, fourth power of the Sphinx, can't tell anybody anything. <laughs> and I, well, yeah, silentium starium, right? Silence is golden. But, you know, if, you're, if you know your audience is really interested and this is something that they've professed interest in, well, don't go giving up the secrets of Freemasonry or the, the advanced, you know, passwords of the, you know, second order rituals, but you can still sit there for an hour and talk to them about, you know, astrology, tarot, divination, ceremonial magic, some of the grimoires, hand them the tree of life with the secret teachings of all ages by Manly P. Hall and say, here, it's a great book. Try this out. Come back to me if you're reading anything that you really like and want to learn more about. We can talk about that too over a coffee sometime. Don't be a dick and you can go far. But that's, that is the role of an adept, in my opinion, is to help teach people, guide them. And, you know, you will obviously, as an adept or as, as any advanced student of magic, I think the word adept is not really appropriate, an advanced student of magic is someone who's been studying for a while, you'll have come up to your own conclusions. You'll have your own ideas on how magic really works. You'll agree with certain authors and disagree with others. But... I think the fourth part of the Sphinx is important in the concept that never speak ill of other people. You may not agree with an author, but let the student make that decision for themselves. You know, some authors are obviously worse than others. I mean, but writing a book is not easy. I won't condemn anyone who's put the effort into trying to write something um, unless they're doing it purely for money and, you know, to make themselves look cool. I don't really agree with that, but that's just me. That's my opinion. Um, I think that um, you can help guide a student, though, towards the right kind of books. I mean, one of the first books I shove into the hands of people who are interested in studying magic is The Tree of Life by Israel Regardi. I'm like, here, read this. It's a great primer because it's dull, it's dry, and it's just like almost every book on magic. If you really like it, you're going to be glued to it. And if you don't like it, you're probably going to be looking at something else. And uh, I like giving people the secret teachings of all ages because it's a Manly P. Hall's magnum opus. It's a great overview of all the different traditions in the Western world. And um, it's excellent. It's an excellent introduction to all these cool subjects. And he really does give credit where credit's due. He gives huge props to all the different Rosicrucian, Golden Dawn, occult, Freemasonry societies, and, and the philosophies and backgrounds of a lot of the different religions that are tied into them. And, you know, that's really cool. And then you read it and you go, ha, yeah, I'm really into that stuff. Or I really like this chapter. Oh, well, tell me some more about that chapter. Here's some great books that are about that chapter. That's your role as a, as a teacher. And help that person, encourage that person's desire to learn. Just like any teacher in school should be encouraging you to want to learn more, encouraging you to want to study more. And because magic is all study, it's all glued to book. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, Saul. Magic is also intuition, and that is a big part of it, and following your will. And it doesn't always involve a book. Um, you know, some of the best magic I've done is magic that I've just. I felt and I've pushed my energy out and I've cultivated something and I'm like, well, you know what? That really worked. I really feel that that works for me. And I move on with my intuition with that one. Um, but at least in the Western mystery traditions, it's almost exclusively looking in old dusty books and reading, 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 reading. And then as uh, one of my good friends, who's, who's actually one of my current teachers as well, because we're all still learning. Um, one of my current buddies says to me, he's like, um, you know, studying magic is like studying any sport, like soccer. He's like, you know, you can, 
You can read about it all you want to. You can read every rule, know all the players of all the major teams. You can understand its history, its development, why they use this ball to that ball, why they call it football, and why they call it soccer in other countries. You can do all the research and know all the stuff. And if you've never gone outside and kicked a soccer ball in a field, you'll never really understand the work. And I've met lots of armchair magicians, guys who do nothing but read the books. If you don't go and put on the robes or at least stand in the room and use your finger and draw your pentagrams and try to actually do the magic, you'll never really understand it. Um, it's so important to also kick the soccer ball around to actually do the work. Otherwise, you're just an armchair magician. And that's fine. A theoretical magician is absolutely I'm fine. to buy our books. Someone's got to buy our books. <laughs> Someone's got to buy the books. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but I'm hoping that they're more than just, you know, the ancient and mystical order of, of uh, magicians like from Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I'm hoping they're more like Mr. Norrell. They collect the books and they do the magic. You know what I mean? Um, but anyways, gentlemen, I'm going to leave it there. I, uh, I hope that's good for everybody. And um, it's been an honor talking to you all tonight. And uh, thank you, Frater RC, for having me as a, as a guest lecturer and, and um, having the opportunity to just listen to me go on and on and on, talk like a Leo about all my favorite subjects. So I really appreciate this. Well, we, we look forward to having you uh, in the Hermetic Mystery School do a guest lecture next month on the HGA and all that stuff. So uh, I know everyone's very excited about that and wish you luck with your move uh, to uh, a new home and sale of your current house and all all of that best to your wife and, and family and all that. Thank you for being here, brother. Um, Thank you. It's, my, it's like been my honor. A few days. Yeah. It's been my honor, my friend. Anyways, guys, thank you so much. And um, I'm going to, I got to, I got to run. So thank Peace you so out. much. See you, homie. Peace. <laughs> Peace. Love. I'll Peace. see you later. <laughs> Good night. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk